Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. This hour, some New Yorkers heading into the evening commute may be on edge after this morning's mass shooting at a subway station in Brooklyn. The gunman is still at large. Mayor Eric Adams spoke to WNYC host Brian Lehrer about it. We know that the person responsible wanted to bring a level of terror into our subway system. But police say the attack is currently not under investigation as an act of terrorism. 16 people were injured after the gunman opened fire. The suspect again managed to run away and is still on the loose. NPR's Jasmine Garz is at the scene. The shooting began at the 36th Street Station in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. The gunman donned a gas mask before opening a canister, releasing a cloud of smoke, and opening fire on the subway platform and the end train. Officials say this is still an active shooting situation. The suspect is described as a heavyset black male, about 5 feet 5. Despite at least 10 people being shot, no one was killed. Some are said to be seriously wounded but expected to survive. The incident comes at a time when New Yorkers are being encouraged to commute to their offices again, but faith in the safety and reliability of the city's transportation system is low. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New York. The White House is condemning an Oklahoma law that imposes a near total ban on abortions performed in the state. Press Secretary Jen Psaki said today the actions of Oklahoma's lawmakers are part of what she called a disturbing trend attacking women's rights. Republican Governor Kevin Stitt signed into law a bill that makes it illegal to perform an abortion except to save the life of the mother. A violation is punishable by up to 10 years in prison. Russian hackers recently attempted to shut off electrical power for millions of Ukrainians, but the effort failed. NPR's Greg Myrie reports Russia has a history of cyber attacks in Ukraine that goes back years. The Russian cyber attack attempted to take down Ukrainian electrical substations. This comes from Ukrainian cybersecurity officials and from researchers at a firm in Slovakia called ESET. They say Russian military hackers gained access to the computer networks in February and plan to carry out the attack this past weekend. The Russians were using some of the same malware that knocked out power to Ukraine in 2015. Ukrainian officials say the latest attempt was thwarted, though they did not say which electrical stations were targeted. Russia has been blamed for a number of cyber attacks in Ukraine recently, but not on the scale that many had feared. Greg Myrie, NPR News. The Dow closes down 87 points, ending the day at 34,220. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Commuters riding the MBTA today and through the weekend may see more uniformed police and canine teams. Transit police increased security in Boston after a shooting during the morning rush hour in New York City's subway system today. Officials say the increased police presence here is a precaution. They say so far there's no evidence to suggest that the T is the target of any attack. State transportation officials are urging drivers to slow down as they travel near construction zones. The state highway administrator reports today that work zone fatalities increased 21 percent in 2020 compared to the year prior. Overall, speeding is a contributing factor in 37 percent of crashes in Massachusetts. The chief financial officer at the Cambridge-based biotech company Moderna is retiring. David Maline will transition out of the role starting in May. 
Originally, he planned to retire from the biotech industry two years ago. Instead, he joined Moderna early in the pandemic to help the company as it developed a COVID vaccine. In the forecast, a beautiful day out there right now. Lots of sunshine. Look for some clouds around tonight. Lows in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, sunshine, clouds, highs almost reaching 70 degrees, and clouds return for Thursday. 64 degrees now in the Boston area at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston, going up to All Things Considered in just a couple of minutes, talking about inflation. The rate of inflation rose in the U.S. a little over 8% last month. We will put that in context for you uh, and find out how it affects you, how it affects the country. And we want to talk to you about our own finances right now. Our fund drive is over tomorrow. We totally realize that there are pressures on every budget, uh, the budget of just about everybody who's listening right now included. And we hope that despite that, if you can, you will make room in your budget for WBUR. You make time in your life for it, and we hope that you can put a dollar value on what that time is worth to you. And we can make it worth uh, uh, whatever you want it to be. So if it's a $10 a month gift, we would so appreciate that. If you can swing $100 a month, we would appreciate that. one 800 909 9287 or WBUR.org. Call before we go to the start of All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins here with co-host of WBUR's podcast, Endless Thread, Amory Sievertson. Hi, Amory. Hi, Lisa. I've got a question for you. Yes. When was the last time you hung out with some gorillas? Um, mm, Has it never. been too long? It's way too long. <laughs> yes. Well, John Linehan is president and CEO of Zoo New England, and we, we talked to him recently because we have a thank you gift on the table here. Four passes to Zoo New England as our thanks for a contribution of $10 a month to WBUR. And John Linehan at Zoo New England told us that spending time with the gorillas at their new home at the Franklin Park Zoo is a life-changing experience. You will be in their domain where they're in literally in a superior position. They can be above you, they can be beside you, but they'll never be below you. And you will be able to watch them and watch them interact with each other, watch them interact with other people in a way that will truly inspire and build that empathy that we want to achieve. If you, too, have not spent time with any gorillas lately, recently, (laughs) change that. Get that four-pass pack to Zoo New England as our thanks of a gift of $10 a month to support the journalism you know, you love, you trust, you rely on from WBUR. Uh, Call 1-800-909-9287 or give online as generously as you can at WBUR.org. You know, I hadn't thought about it, but I I didn't realize until now that I really do want to hang out with gorillas. And you can, Lisa. You can, absolutely. (laughs) So you can, too. Make your pledge right now, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. When you call, you will automatically be entered into the sweepstakes to win tickets for two to see Paul McCartney at Fenway Park June 8th, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Thank you so much. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Make your dreams a priority with a part-time MBA from Babson. Rank the top Northeast graduate school for entrepreneurship by the Princeton Review and Entrepreneur Magazine. Attend online or in person. Apply by April 18th for scholarship consideration. Babson.edu slash part-time.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Daniel Estrin in Washington, where the government has released the latest round of inflation numbers. Consumer prices surged again, up 8.5% in March from a year ago. It's the highest annual increase in more than four decades. For months now, we have used superlatives like surged and highest to describe the situation. But those statistics are just that, statistics. They don't illustrate how these price increases are affecting real people, people who were struggling to make ends meet before inflation started to soar. People like Ginger Bryce of Austin, Texas. She was laid off from her job as a hotel concierge at the beginning of the pandemic. And even though she got unemployment, disability, and food stamps, Bryce had to downsize her family's two-bedroom, two-bathroom apartment. That was fun. So we did that. (laughs) They moved to a one-bed, one-bath apartment. It's tight quarters, but she and her two kids made it work. And then in December 2020, Ginger was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, stage four. I started chemo April 1st, 2021. (laughs) So that was terrible and somehow crawled through that. Do not ask me how. Ginger had to hire someone to help with her kids. And then there was another cost. The doctors required that I have a second bathroom because when you're in chemo, nobody can use your bathroom. So we then upsized to a three-bedroom, two-bath. Another move, another cost. Now Ginger is doing better and working part-time. It helps to keep food on the table, but with the rising cost of groceries and gas, she has to keep her budget very tight. And Ginger's rent is going up by 20%. So she is moving again. She's only saving about $100 a month with this move. But Ginger says she doesn't worry about things she can't control. Cancer taught her that. I just manage what's in front of me. For me, it's like I'm not really worried that much about the future. You know, we just roll with the punches. Ginger Bryce of Austin, Texas, talking about what it's like trying to make ends meet in the middle of historic inflation. We're going to talk about the economics and politics of this with NPR's Scott Horsley and NPR's Kelsey Snell. Welcome to you both. Hello. Good to be with you. Scott, let's start with you. Prices jumped 1.2% just between February and March. What is going on? That's right, Daniel. Just when you think prices can't go much higher, they go higher. Uh, As you said, year-over-year inflation is the highest in more than four decades. The monthly increase in March was the highest in 17 years. And more than half that total jump in prices last month came at the gas pump. Uh, We know the price of gasoline hit an all-time high after Russia invaded Ukraine. And even though gas prices have come down a bit since then, the average price across the country is still well above $4 a gallon. But it's not just gasoline, right? No, it's not. Uh, Grocery prices have also been going up a lot. Some of that's also tied to the war in Ukraine. Both Russia and Ukraine are big wheat producers, and flour prices, for example, have been climbing around the world. But even before the war, uh, the war, food prices were on the way up. Over the last 12 months, grocery prices have jumped by 10 percent. Wow. And food economist David Ortega of Michigan State University says that's the biggest sticker shop at the supermarket in 40 years. We're headed into Easter weekend, right? So we're looking at egg prices are up over 11 percent. You know, that Easter ham that many Americans will be cooking is up 14 percent. So it's very real for people here. Now, not everything is more expensive. The price of used cars actually dropped last month after soaring earlier because of the shortage of new cars. 
But that drop in used car prices was more than offset by price increases elsewhere. Uh, Rent's been going up, as we heard Ginger Bryce talk about. Airline tickets are getting more expensive. Inflation is spreading throughout the economy. Uh, I got my hair cut this past weekend, and there was a sign in the barbershop warning that prices are going to go up $2 at the first of the month in order to keep pace with inflation. That's a 12.5% increase, although... Uh, after cutting my own hair early in the pandemic, I can tell it's <laughs> worth every penny. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you look good, Scott. But let me turn to you, Kelsey. Um, the White House keeps using this term, Putin's price hike. So the White House very deliberately trying to blame Russia for inflation, at least for gas prices. Is that strategy working? Well, I'll point you to an NPR Ipsos poll conducted last month that showed that roughly a third of all respondents and two thirds of Republicans blame Biden specifically for inflation. You know, only about 20 percent of all Americans in that poll say they blame Putin for gas and oil prices. Hmm. It's even just a quarter of Democrats who blame Putin. You know, more so they blame big oil and gas companies. But, you know, as Scott's been saying, gas and oil are just one part of inflation and people are really worried about things like the cost of groceries, as we heard. People worry about housing. People worry about new cars. Just about everything right now is more expensive. And people do realize that those price concerns predated the war. Hmm. So my colleague Asma Khalid uh, asked White House Press, Sec- Press Secretary Jen Psaki about this yesterday. And here's how she responded. Factually, if you look at the data, the average gas prices are up a dollar, 80, 80 cents to a dollar. It's about a 25%. We've seen increase in gas prices since the start of this invasion. And we know energy prices is a big driver of the inflation data. So Saki says the White House has been talking about inflation for a long time, but they say Russia will be the thing driving this going forward, the big thing driving it going forward. Huh, okay. So Scott, uh, where does inflation go from here? Forecasters think March was probably the peak for annual inflation, unless another war breaks out someplace. Gas prices have started coming down. Uh, We're also coming into a stretch where last year's prices were higher, so the year-over-year comparisons are going to look a little bit better. But even if inflation cools off a bit, prices could stay uncomfortably high. The Federal Reserve has started raising interest rates, uh, and over time, that should help to bring demand back in line with supply. But you know, there's a long lead time before those rate hikes start to work. So we're likely to be living with higher inflation than most of us are used to for some time to come. Huh. And Kelsey, there are politics to this too, right? Um, are Democrats worried that inflation could hurt their chances of keeping control of Congress in the midterm elections. Oh, absolutely. And they have every reason to be worried. You know, most political strategists will tell you that most people vote based on how they personally feel and the world they personally experience. If people feel like they are being economically harmed and they see that those conditions have gotten worse under Democrats, well, many of them will blame the party in power. You know, Biden is aware of that. That's why he went to uh, Iowa today to talk about gas prices. Hmm. He's going to North Carolina on Thursday to talk about supply chain problems. That said, there are a lot of things that can happen between now and Election Day. And while it's unlikely inflation will suddenly get resolved, that doesn't mean major events won't happen that could alter top political priorities for a lot of voters. That is NPR congressional correspondent Kelsey Snell and chief economic correspondent Scott Horsley. Thank you both. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. 
Russia is on the verge of a default on its foreign debt, something that hasn't happened in more than a century since the Russian Revolution. Wide-ranging sanctions and trade restrictions have isolated Russia, but a default would make it even more of a pariah, and it could have lasting effects on the country's economy. For more on this, we're joined now by NPR's David Gura. Hey, David. Hey, Elsa. So can you just explain for us, like, how did Russia get to this point where it's on the edge of default? Well, a lot has happened over the last week. Russia faced a deadline to make interest payments to foreign investors on two bonds to the tune of almost $650 million. Now, those payments had to be made in dollars, but Russia said that because of restrictions the U.S. and its allies have put in place, doing that, paying in U.S. currency would be impossible. So Russia used rubles, and that is not allowed. These bonds are denominated in dollars, and the contracts require Russia to make these payments in dollars. Shortly after this happened, the ratings agency S&P Global said Russia is in what's called a selective default. This is often a preliminary step before a full default. Russia has a little breathing room here, a 30-day grace period, but the clock is already ticking on that. And if the country doesn't make these payments in dollars by early May, Elsa, Russia will effectively default. And what would be the effects of that if Russia defaults? You know, a default would isolate Russia even more from the global economy at a time when it's facing widening sanctions and dwindling reserves. Access to capital markets is crucial to countries that need to borrow to pay for all kinds of projects and programs. And while Russia's debt load is fairly small relative to the size of its economy, a default would compound a situation that's gotten worse and worse. So much of Russia's foreign exchange reserves come from selling energy. And now the European Union is considering a ban on energy exports from Russia. A default is also something that would be historically significant and fraught with symbolism. Tim Samples is a professor at the University of Georgia who specializes in foreign investment. This is a reflection of just how far and how fast Russia has fallen from favor in Western capital markets. Now, countries have defaulted and eventually they've been welcomed back to the debt markets, but memories of a default tend to linger and in the future Russia may have to pay more to borrow. And I mean... David, can Russia even make these payments that it owes? This is a good question and a tricky question. I mean, the the U.S. is making it as difficult as possible. Uh, The U.S. and its allies have frozen most of Russia's foreign currency reserves. They've placed restrictions on financial institutions. Odette Linau is a sovereign debt expert at Cornell Law School. There's been a shift in policy, and so there is a lack of a technical capacity to actually make these payments. But it's not impossible. I mean, Russia does have dollars elsewhere. It could get more dollars selling energy. And although many banks are barred from doing business with Russia, there are non-sanctioned banks with which it could work. Well, what about foreign investors? Like, are they going to be losing money? Yeah, when we say foreign investors, we're talking about hedge funds and emerging markets funds run by asset managers like Invesco and PIMCO, along with some individual investors. Sovereign debt experts told me that if investors didn't sell these bonds in the early days of the war, there's not much more they can do than wait. But right now, all signs point to a default. And if that happens, what we can expect is a significant, protracted legal battle over these payments. A strange wrinkle here is that Russia's finance minister says Russia is also prepared to sue over how this has played out. This is likely to take a while. Just keep in mind that after Argentina defaulted, negotiations went on for more than a decade. That is NPR's David Gura. Thank you, David. Thank you.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR on Wall Street. A slide for stocks today. The Dow fell about a quarter of a percent, 88 points, to close at 34,220. S&P dropped about a third of a percent to close at 43.97. The Nasdaq fell for a third day, down three-tenths of a percent, to end the day at 13,372. All the details coming up at 6.30 on Marketplace. It's now 421. Funding for WBOR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases, committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. 64 degrees in the Boston area now with lots of sunshine. A few clouds around overnight tonight. Temperatures in the mid-40s for a low. And for tomorrow, clouds and sunshine both with highs almost reaching 70 around the upper 60s tops. And then we should see clouds back for Thursday. 64 degrees in the Boston area. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, sponsor of Growing Healthy Futures with Greater Boston Food Bank, mathworks.com gbfb. Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the A Lot to Love event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Ascent with seating for eight. CitysideSubaru.com and AAFCPAs, accounting, audit, tax, advisory, and wealth management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals. AAFCPA.com. This is 90.9 WBUR, taking just about two and a half minutes out right now to remind you that tomorrow is the end of our spring fun drive. And we are so grateful to the thousands of listeners who have already called in and gotten us this far through the fundraiser. If you haven't called yet, please consider making a $10 a month contribution, $20 a month contribution, whatever is good for your budget is good for us. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Emery Sievertson of Endless Thread. Lisa, I can hardly sit still. I don't know how you just said that in such a measured way because we have a triple match on the table right now in this WBUR fundraiser until 7 o'clock tonight. A generous group of listeners are putting forward some of their money to encourage you to give some of your money. So as Lisa said, if you can give $10 a month right now to WBUR, that's going to become $30 a month for the station. If you can give a larger gift right now of, say, $1,000, that's going to become $3,000 for WBUR just for making your gift right now. Call 1-800-909-9287 or do it online at WBUR.org. And I got to go back to this zoo trip. We talked about hanging out with some gorillas, (laughs) but we still have some of these four-pack passes to Zoo New England, which means that you can use them at either the Franklin Park Zoo in Boston or the Stone Zoo in Stoneham. And that's as our thanks for a gift of $10 a month to WBUR, which, again, remember becomes $30 a month right now just for making your gift now with this triple match on the table. And John Linehan is the president and CEO of Zoo New England, and he spoke to us about why they decided to partner with WBUR. Well, you know, I I think one of the things about your audience and our audience is that they both care about the well-being of the world in the long run. And it's really about getting them to appreciate all the life forms that share it and how important they are to each other. You know, we saw what happened when they removed wolves from Yellowstone and what happened when they reintegrated them and really made that ecosystem whole again. And so many species came back. 
but you know, a healthy planet is ultimately something that's going to rely on everybody having a role. It's not just a few conservationists. They can't save the world. It's, it's really ultimately about us changing our behaviors and, and living more sensitively on the planet. That's right. And if you want to help WBUR have a long, healthy future, uh, you, we we're asking you to give right now in any amount when your money will be tripled, thanks to this group of generous listeners. Absolutely. So, yep. And so that means $100 a month becomes $300 a month. If you can do that, $15 a month, it triple your match will turn into $45 a month. So your gift will make, as Amory was saying there, a huge impact on your community and certainly on the radio station that you have chosen to listen to of all the stations on the dial. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Don't forget when you call, you'll automatically be entered in to win two tickets to see Paul McCartney at Fenway Park on June 8th. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help create a comprehensive plan for a client's full financial picture. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Daniel Estrin. Drug use among teens has decreased in the past couple of years, but a new study finds that overdose deaths for this age group rose dramatically in 2020. It's the first increase in a decade. The study also zeroes in on what caused this rise in deaths. To tell us more about these these findings, we are joined by NPR's health correspondent, Ritu Chatterjee. Hi, Ritu. Hi, Daniel. This sounds uh, really troubling. How many deaths are we talking about? So for a decade, you know, overdose deaths among teens didn't change that much. But going from 2019 to 2020, they nearly doubled. And we're talking about more than 950 teens who died from an overdose in 2020. And uh, it went up again in 2021 to more than 1,100 teens. And the highest rate of deaths were for American Indian and Alaska Native youth, followed by Latinx youth. Um, Joseph Friedman is a public health researcher at the University of California, Los Angeles and the lead author of the study. And here's what he told me about these findings. This is very alarming because what we've seen in other parts of the population is that when overdose death rates start to rise, they tend to continue to do so for quite some time. So, you know, Friedman's concerned that this is just the beginning of this disturbing trend. Wow. So if if we know that fewer teens use drugs during the pandemic, why are we seeing this big jump in deaths? Yeah, in short, Daniel, it's because of fentanyl. The new study found that there was a huge jump in fentanyl-related uh, fentanyl deaths that uh, uh, the last couple of years. In fact, last year, 77% of overdose deaths in this age group were caused by fentanyl. And it's not the fentanyl in heroin or cocaine that adults commonly use. Uh, those drugs are less popular among teens who prefer prescription pills. So prescription opioids like Oxy- Oxycontin or prescription amphetamines or benzodiazepines. But uh, teens who use these drugs often buy them from their friends or off the street. And increasingly, those drugs are counterfeit 
pills contaminated with fentanyl, especially in the past couple of years. And um, here's Dr. Nora Volkov, who directs the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And she says recent estimates suggest at least one third of illicitly manufactured pills are contaminated with fentanyl. And to the extent that you are actually consuming them in the past, it was you would just get sedated. Now you can take one benzodiazepine, one pill, and it can kill you. And she uh, says she hears these heartbreaking stories from parents who say that they knew their kid used a drug occasionally and suddenly one night they died. Wow, that is upsetting. Mm -hmm. How can we stop uh, this from killing more teens? So Friedman says there's an urgent need to educate teens about the risk of using these pills. It's pretty clear that teens don't understand that many of the pills that are available right now on the street are actually counterfeit. And, you know, you can't really tell that a pill is laced with fentanyl just by looking at it. And I also spoke with Sheila Vakaria, who's with the advocacy group, the Drug Policy Alliance, and she says young people just need more information about drugs. So many of our young people are so busy being taught to not use drugs that when they are exposed to them or they're surrounded by it, they actually have very little information to go off of to keep themselves or their friends safe. So she says, you know, they need to learn how to identify signs of an overdose, what to do if somebody overdoses. And it's really important for schools uh, to have the medication naloxone, uh, which reverses overdose, to be made widely available to youth and they should be taught how to use it. Important story. NPR's Aritu Chatterjee, thank you so much. Thanks, Daniel. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Native Plant Trust. Welcoming spring at Garden in the Woods in Framingham. Open Sunday. The beauty of native plants in a dramatic landscape. Information at nativeplanttrust.org. And Celebrity Series, presenting Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, April 28th through May 1st at the Box Center Wang Theater. Learn more at celebrityseries.org. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. The actor and stand-up comedian Gilbert Gottfried has died. His publicist says Gottfried died from a disorder that affects the heart. He was 67. Police in New York City are looking for the gunman who opened fire in a subway station in Brooklyn this morning. At least 10 people were shot. Another six were injured. Some of those shot, seriously wounded, but officials expect them to survive. Police Commissioner Kishant Sewell says she is not ruling anything out, but she says the attack is not being investigated as terrorism. Pentagon spokesman John Kerr Kirby says the U.S. cannot confirm whether a chemical agent has been used in the devastated port city of Mariupol, but he says the U.S. is justifiably concerned. Obviously taking it seriously, and we're monitoring it. We're trying to do the best we can to, to figure out uh, what, if anything, happened, but we're not in a position to confirm it right now. The U.S., Ukraine, and others are investigating the unconfirmed reports, but officials caution that determining whether chemical weapons have been used in Mariupol will take time. Mariupol has been under siege for weeks. A Russian appeals court has remanded the case of a former U.S. Marine detained in Russia to a lower court for further review from Moscow. NPR's Charles Maines has details. Former Marine Trevor Reed was arrested in 2019 for allegedly attacking two Moscow policemen after a night of drinking. He was later sentenced to nine years. The court's decision to delay his appeal comes as Reed faces health concerns. He was on a hunger strike earlier this year and says he's since contracted tuberculosis-like symptoms. Appearing by video from a prison hospital, he maintained his innocence. 
You can mention that the whole thing is fabricated, that there's video evidence they denied us, that their so-called victims changed their testimony multiple times. U.S. Ambassador to Russia John Sullivan attended the hearing and afterward expressed disappointment at the decision. Charles Maine's NPR News, Moscow. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A mask mandate will not be reinstated yet in Boston. That's despite an increase in COVID infections. Mayor Michelle Wu says it's too soon to think about masking up again. We're not there yet in terms of the sort of multi-layered metrics that we're watching to move back into a masking mandate. But we do want to just note that the numbers have been on a little bit of an uptick. And so we're watching that very carefully here. Mayor Wu says the city is at a 5.4 percent community positivity rate. She says while that's above the threshold for reimposing restrictions, the numbers have fluctuated and the city will have to monitor upward trends. A Massachusetts man whose life in prison sentence was commuted will be released on parole. The state's parole board has unanimously decided to grant parole to Thomas Kuntz. WBR's Deborah Becker reports the board cited Kuntz's age when he was convicted and his work in prison. Thomas Kuntz was 20 years old when he was charged with killing Mark Santos when he fired a shot during a fight in New Bedford in 1987. He then spent more than 30 years in prison. Governor Charlie Baker commuted that sentence earlier this year, and Kuntz's attorney Tim Foley says his client is grateful. He certainly feels that he's accomplished, and he's very happy to, very happy, very excited, and thankful to the board and the governor as well. Among the board's conditions for release are that Kuntz live in a re-entry program for four Four months, abide by a curfew and electronic monitoring, it's not clear when exactly Kuntz will be let out. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. People flying in and out of Logan Airport are still facing delays. According to FlightAware.com, there have been 87 flights delayed already today and seven cancellations. JetBlue, Logan's largest carrier, has had 27 flights delayed today. Airlines have blamed staffing shortages in part for the disruptions. In the forecast, overnight tonight should have partly cloudy skies, temperatures around the mid-40s. And for tomorrow, sunshine and clouds both should be about the upper 60s tomorrow, a nice day, and then clouds should return for Thursday. 64 degrees in the Boston area at 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. And Babson College. Make your dreams a priority with their part-time MBA. Apply by April 18th for scholarship consideration. Babson.edu slash part-time. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Okay, Friday is the Boston Red Sox home opener at Fenway Park, but today is opening day for the Woo Sox in Worcester. The first pitch was 3:05 against the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs. This is the second season for the AAA Sox affiliate at Polar Park in Worcester since they relocated from Pawtucket in Rhode Island. And this year, there are four times more fans in the stands since pandemic restrictions have been lifted. That means 9,508 spectators per game. And lucky are the fans who need directions or a helping hand of any kind and run into a Sox employee who's like a fairy godmother with a walrus mustache, big grin, and love of his job. We found him last year at the park. Uh, Rick Medeiros, Chief Ambassador, the Worcester Red Sox, a.k.a. 
the Woo Sox. And you did work for the Paw Sox. I did. I spent 21 years with the Pawtucket Red Sox, a.k.a. the Paw Sox. (laughs) And you came to Worcester with the team. What's the difference between working there and working here? Uh, It's the same team, but vastly different park. Very different park. McCoy Stadium was uh, 75 years old, and this one is a newborn. And actually, you know, very state-of-the-art. I like to, if I ask... Uh, you know, how would you describe it in one word? I always say just majestic. It's absolutely majestic. It, it's really like a work of art. And you can tell by the fans how happy they are, it, you know, how it looks, how it feels, uh, and, you know, the pulse of the excitement of, uh, you know, the city of Worcester in general. And it was quite refreshing to see everybody working together in the city of Worcester And I have no doubt in my mind that this is going to be a destination. It's just great. I, you know, how can I not like coming to work at a ballpark? I talked to a lot of people here who work here, and they seem genuinely happy. Maybe it's maybe they got to kind of put it on, or maybe it's because they're new, because everybody's new. But but you do too. You can never fake enthusiasm. What's the best part of your job and the worst part of your job? The best part of my job is dealing with people. I just love dealing with people. I love it. Uh, the worst part of my job, uh, God, that, that might be some thought. I, I don't know. All right, just one final thing. Right. Just, what's your favorite story uh, so far about working here? Let me just tell you what we just did. We took a ball and I told this little kid who was with his dad and of course this is planned out and we said hey buddy stay right here I know where every foul ball is hit right so a guy behind me has the ball and I go with the kid I said right let's stand right here him and his dad when I tap the back of my hat he launches the ball in the air and it come down bouncing in front of us and the kid is saying oh my god <laughs> you know so uh, and now I said see that I told you I got this all figured out and he was so happy he got the ball so you so, made his day and he made your day <clears throat> oh absolutely yeah. I mean I think that's um, <clears throat> that's why we do what we do uh, you know it's all about the fan experience Thank you so much. I thank you guys so much for coming. Rick Medeiros is the chief ambassador of the Worcester Red Sox. He's out there at Polar Park right now where the score on opening day in the fifth inning is Woo Sox 1, Iron Pigs nothing. I'm Layla Falden. It's exciting to start something new, a job, a new book, a binge-worthy podcast. If you've never given to this station before, now is a great time to start. Here's how to donate. By calling this number right now, 1-800-909-9287 or going online at WBUR.org. A special reason to give right now. We have uh, sometimes matching gifts on the table. This is a really 
exceptional and rare matching gift. Amory Severson? Yeah, this is a triple match, Lisa. That means that your money goes three times as far for all of the news and programming that you love, that you trust, that you truly rely on from WBUR. So if you can give $10 a month right now to WBUR, it'll become $30 a month. If you can give, let's say, $15 a month, that's going to turn into $45 a month. And especially if you can give a larger gift right now, those will also be tripled. So if you can make a $500 contribution, That'll become $1,500. If you can give even more than that, maybe $2,000, that becomes $6,000 just by making the call right now. Go to uh, call 1-800-909-9287, or you can give online, WBUR.org. And know that this is an important moment to work together to protect independent journalism. The largest share of our funding comes from contributing listeners. You make a big difference with a $10, $15 a month uh, gift to WBUR. WBUR, and right now especially, those gifts are going to be tripled. So your gift of $10 becomes $30. Your gift of $15 becomes $45. Give whatever you can afford, but please do make the call right now because we're coming up on the end of this fun drive. And give for people like Rick Medeiros. I don't know if he's ever given to public radio, but the chief ambassador of the Worcester Red Sox was just a real find for us. I went to uh, the Red Sox game, a Red Sox, Worcester Red Sox game, a uh, couple of um, uh, times last year. And we just happened to come across him, some friends of mine and I, and he was such a find. It was an unplanned interview, but he was just, um, you know, it's like a no-brainer. You just want somebody like this Amory on tape. I know that you run across <laughs> these people all the time. And um, and so if you appreciate people like him and listening to people like him on WBUR in really short stories, I think that was like three and a half minutes, then make your pledge of support to WBUR right now for stories like that and then for the major stories that you get in the news. one 800 wbur.org and have your gift tripled right now. Tripled. I just can't believe it. It's It seems too good to be true, and yet this is all thanks to a generous group of listeners who have stepped up to do their part for WBUR, and they want to encourage you to do your part because it's really easy to forget where the news comes from, right? You just turn on WBUR, we're there for you day in and day out, but you're able to listen to WBUR because of the contributions of other listeners. Other people stepped up and gave their $10 a month, maybe it was, or maybe gave a large gift of a of $1,000 to WBUR. People said, what can I give back to this radio station? If you listen to WBUR and you think, what can I do? This is what you can do. You are the public in public radio. You power everything we do. You make everything that you hear on this station possible, not just for you, but for everybody who relies on the information, the fact-based, thoughtful, analytical journalism that they get from WBUR. It's paid for by the listener. So do your part in any amount right now because it will be tripled only until 7 o'clock tonight or until this matching money runs out. So call one 800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And we're hoping you do that now. Before we go back to the news, of course, you can still call during the news. Just make the call right now. The fundraiser is coming to an end uh, tomorrow. This triple match is coming to an end 
<clears throat> sooner than that. I think it ends at 7 o'clock or as soon as the money runs out. <clears throat> and we know lots more people call during these triple matches. And why not? When you get to have your $15 a month pledge uh, mean $45 a month for us, $150 pledge becomes $450 for us every month. So if you can swing that, if you can afford to give to WBUR, and we know not everybody can, please do so right now because this is a really transparent transaction. You get back from this radio station what you put into it. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. This is a premium time to give something to this station right now. That's right. And this is the way that public radio works. We have your back with all the news and information. You turn on WBUR and know that you can trust what you're hearing. You know that you'll learn something. You know that you'll hear delightful conversations like we just heard the one with with Lisa and the, the person with the Worcester Red Sox. So give back to that. Keep that going. Your money will be tripled for the news by calling 1-800-909-9287 or going to WBUR.org. And you could win two tickets to see Paul McCartney at Fenway Park on June 8th with your phone call, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Thank you so much. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. Violent white and anti-government extremists are increasingly drawing the scrutiny of federal authorities. But the recent mistrials and acquittals in a high-profile case may have far-reaching implications. The case involved four men charged with plotting to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan back in 2020. And to talk more about it, we're joined now by NPR's Odette Youssef, who covers domestic extremism. Hey, Odette. Hi there. Okay, so I remember back in October of 2020 when these arrests happened. Can you just remind us, like, what led up to this case? Sure. The investigation started when a man found a group called the Wolverine Watchmen on Facebook, apparently talking about killing law enforcement officers, and he notified local police. Well, he became an FBI informant, and ultimately, 14 men were charged at the state or federal levels for allegedly conspiring to kidnap Governor Whitmer, supposedly because they were upset about the anti-COVID lockdowns in the state. Four of those, Elsa, stood trial in federal court these last two months, mm -hmm. and the jury could not come to a decision about two of them. But what's really remarkable is that they acquitted the other two, and that's notable for those who study this so-called entrapment defense. Right. Entrapment is a defense that rarely works, but it worked in this case. Can you just explain what these defendants were arguing when they say they were entrapped? They argued that the government essentially drove the plot that they were accused of through its use of undercover agents and paid informants. You know, the FBI often uses sting operations in counterterrorism cases. But, you know, as you said, defendants don't al always invoke the entrapment defense because it's a pretty narrow legal standard. Um, I spoke with Jesse Norris about this. He's a professor at SUNY Fredonia. 
He says the entrapment defense has been used hundreds of times since 9-11, but by his count, this is the first time it succeeded in winning acquittals. Wow. Critics have been arguing that the FBI is engaging in entrapment in terrorism cases for many years. And one of the FBI's stock responses to that argument is that, well, they've raised the entrapment defense before and it's always failed. But I think now that argument's gone. And the government's level of involvement in this case, Elsa, was something that the defense really focused on. You know, some informants were paid tens of thousands of dollars, and there were allegedly more than a dozen informants and several undercover FBI agents, which would altogether have been more than the number of people that were ultimately charged in the alleged plot. Okay, so why did the entrapment defense actually work here? Like, what was different about this case? Yeah, I put that question to Ramzi Qasim. He's a law professor at the City University of New York, where he directs something called the Clear Project. He says the only real difference he saw was in the identity of the defendants and how the case was presented to the public. This was a case involving white male defendants. It was presented as a so-called domestic terrorism case. Whereas in the run of post-9-11 cases, those cases have involved black and or brown, but in any event, Muslim-identified defendants. And the majority of those cases were presented as international terrorism because they were otherized in a number of ways. I think the fact finders in those cases were far less likely to be receptive of the entrapment defense. That is so interesting and kind of disturbing. I mean, this loss for the government on this case, what do you think it means moving forward? Well, Elsa, we're in a climate now where more Americans hold anti-government views or at least a mistrust of the government. And so as we consider that more counterterrorism cases will have white defendants who espouse those views, we have to acknowledge that more jurors may identify with them to some extent. So prosecutors really will need to convince jurors that the targets were being investigated for criminal activity rather than their political beliefs. There's also this risk that government losses in a case like this can inspire future violent extremism. That is NPR's Odette Youssef. Thank you, Odette. Thank you. And now the story of some elderly Ukrainians who survived Nazi concentration camps in their youth and are now having to flee the war in Ukraine. They are part of a major effort to evacuate elderly Holocaust survivors out of Ukraine. Some have already arrived in Germany, the country that once persecuted them. Esme Nicholson reports from Berlin. It's lunchtime at a retirement home on the eastern edge of Berlin. Half a dozen sprightly ladies in their 80s and 90s are sitting at the rowdy table. Here, these women are full of life, but they've just narrowly escaped death for the second time in their lives. They are Ukrainian Holocaust survivors who fled the Nazis as children. Now, in old age, they're on the run again, this time from Russia. Among them is 83-year-old Sonia Lebona Tatakovskaya. She's from Irpin, near Kiev, where Ukrainian authorities say they have found evidence of Russian atrocities carried out on civilians. She says she's immensely relieved to be here, but her frail, childlike build betrays immeasurable suffering. For 20 days before I arrived, I was without gas, without water, without light. I weighed 100 pounds, my normal weight. And when I came here, I weighed almost half that. 
As the other women leave for an afternoon nap, Tartakovskaya stays behind to talk with 90-year-old Ala Ilyanitsya Sinelnikova, who has just arrived from Kharkiv. This war is a catastrophe. It's truly awful. I never thought I would live to see such horror for a second time in my life. I thought it was in my past, all over and done with. And now we're reliving it. Sinenikova was nine years old when she fled Khashiv the first time, fearing Nazi persecution. She says she can't believe she's now hiding in Berlin from the Russians, the very people who liberated her as a child from the Germans. It is a strange paradox. I never believed the Russians would invade us. Half of my family are from Russia. How can I hate them? I can't, even if I wanted to. Rudy Marlow from the Jewish Claims Conference in Germany, a non-profit organization that helps Holocaust survivors, is coordinating the evacuation effort on the ground. He says it takes about 50 different parties to evacuate just one elderly person by ambulance out of Ukraine. And once they're here, he says, they need to be housed in care facilities where the staff speak Russian or Ukrainian. Like in any war, the most weak people are the most vulnerable people. And Holocaust survivors belong to the most vulnerable people. For them, the situation is devastating. Marlow says that some of the survivors trapped in Ukraine refuse to set foot in Germany because of the past. So he's trying to find alternatives for them. We have the re-traumatization of the survivors. But we wanted the survivors, the Holocaust survivors, to feel safe and to feel not abandoned. 83-year-old Sonia Tatakovskaya has now finished her lunch. She says she's put on 10 pounds since arriving in Berlin and adds that if it weren't for her neighbours, she'd be dead. I lived alone. I have nobody. My whole family is long buried in cemeteries in different cities. But thanks to strangers, I got out of Iapin. My neighbours didn't leave me behind. They took me with them. Tartakovskaya was just three years old the first time she fled war. She says that as difficult as it is to be a refugee again, she knows she's one of the lucky ones. For NPR News, I'm Esme Nicholson in Berlin. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. And Point32 Health Companies, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, and Tufts Health Plan, a wide range of benefits to meet the needs of every member through employer, individual, and family coverage. I'm Tiziana Deering. We are keeping a close watch on developments in Ukraine and will bring you all the latest news as it becomes available, even as we ask for your support to help us bring you this news and everything you count on from WBUR. Here's how to help. By calling right now, 1-800-909-9287 or going online at WBUR.org and pledging for stories like that amazing story we just heard on Holocaust survivors who are now in their 80s and 90s trying to flee Ukraine in the wake of the Russian invasion. Um, This is uh, hard, though, for them to get to a safe haven. 
uh, for the generation that survived the Nazis. This is just one of the stories that uh, is a hallmark of National Public Radio. You listen to WBUR to hear stories like that, so please make a pledge for it right now on this day before the end of our fun drive, and especially right now, Amory Sievertson, how come? Because, Lisa, we have a triple match on the table. I can't even believe it as it's coming out of my mouth that this generous group of (laughs) listeners have stepped up to match your money twice over, three times over, really. So if you give $10 a month to WBUR, it will become $30 a month right now for WBUR. If you give $15 a month, it's going to become $45 a month for WBUR. If now's the time when you can give a larger gift, like, say, you know, $1,000 to WBUR, it's going to become $3,000 for WBUR just for making your gift right now, between now and 7 o'clock. So don't let another minute go by. Have your gift in there. Have it tripled by calling 1-800-909-9287 or giving online at WBUR.org. And just remember that every call that comes in at 1-800-909-9287 will get entered into win two tickets uh, to see Paul McCartney at Fenway Park on June 8th. This is our sweepstakes for the Spring Fun Drive. Um, see Paul McCartney, I think it's it's one of two shows. They expanded his, uh, his presence here at Fenway Park because of the popularity of the tickets. So right now, we know that's a popular draw for many people listening right now. Enter the sweepstakes by calling 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Also very popular with good reason, tripling your gift to WBUR. So $15 gift becomes $45. gift a month, if you can swing that, uh, becomes for us $450 a month. Imagine that kind of growth. We are so grateful to those who are making this happen, those listeners who have donated their money already to make a triple match like this possible. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And because the, the largest share of the money that makes WBUR possible comes from our listeners, you hear your dollars at work every time you turn on WBUR. You have the satisfaction of knowing that you have made everything possible, including the incredible coverage we've been able to bring you from Ukraine, from people like NPR London correspondent Frank Langfitt, who's already logged hundreds of miles covering the invasion of Ukraine. And he spoke to us about just how important listener support is to being able to do that. Money in a war zone is crucial uh, because you've got to be you're operating in a, a society that's coming apart, basically, it becomes very difficult to operate. And so, you know, when I'm I'm leaving Odessa after the missile strikes, I'm stopping and I'm loading up on peanuts and dried fruit at a convenience store in a long line of people, knowing that that's what I might be eating for the next three days. And it's good to know that I can get that food. Having, you know, just those financial resources that come ultimately from our listeners is hugely important for us to be able to be the eyes and ears of the country at a moment of great historic importance. And that's having an effect all over the world right now. We can't do this without you. It's as plain and simple as that. We can't bring you anything that you've heard today without the contributions of people who've who've already made their gift to WBUR. So please give right now when your money will go three times as far. Your $100 a month becomes $300 a month. Your one-time gift of $5,000, if you can do that right now, it becomes $15,000 just for making the call right now. one 800 909 
9287 is the number, or give online as generously as you can at WBUR.org. We know the budgets are tight. Our budget is certainly tight. Um, yours may be, too. If you can find it in your budget to support WBUR, knowing that we rely on you to be able to let us provide the news and information on stories like Ukraine, like the pandemic, certainly um, major stories in the news that require an awful lot of resources, then please put your money where your listening habits are, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Get your match, get your pledge that is tripled right now because of this triple match, 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. We are so grateful. Thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mathnasium, committed to boosting students' confidence, critical thinking, and math grades and scores with in-person or online instruction. Each student follows a customized learning plan. More at mathnasium.com. From Subaru, in partnership with its retailers and the National Forest Foundation, Subaru helped replant more than one million trees in areas devastated by wildfires. Love. It's what makes Subaru, Subaru. From the Alzheimer's Association, dedicated to the advancement of Alzheimer's research. At any given moment, research, discovery, and learning are happening. Learn more at alz.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. In New York City, police are still looking for a gunman who opened fire inside a crowded subway train after setting off a smoke canister. Officials say at least 16 people were hurt, 10 of whom were shot, setting off panic aboard the train, which was in Brooklyn at the time, heading towards Manhattan. New York City Councilwoman Alexa Aviles' district includes the Sunset Park neighborhood where the shooting occurred. She says it is understandable city residents are on edge. We've all suffered a trauma and they're going to be afraid. And I think we cannot let the fear shut our city down. Um, We have to continue to use the subways. We know, um, you know, it takes a lot of deep breathing. I'm a mother. My child was on her way to school to this very subway stop. There are children in four buildings here surrounding this very space. Authorities say the shooter who fled the scene remains at large. Police say they are looking for a U-Haul with Arizona plates in connection with the shooting. Officials in Ukraine say more than 500 children there have been killed or wounded since Russia's invasion began. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports millions more have been displaced. Ukraine's top prosecutor, Irina Vendiktova, says at least 186 children have been confirmed killed in Ukraine and 344 injured since the launch of Russia's invasion on February 24th. Ukraine's tally is somewhat higher than the numbers confirmed by the United Nations. Eight agencies have said the actual numbers are likely higher. The UN Children's Agency, UNICEF, says nearly two in three children are displaced by fighting. At a Security Council briefing, UNICEF Emergency Programs Director, Manuel Fountain, says that of the 3.2 million children estimated to have remained in their homes, nearly half may be at risk of not having enough food. He says rarely has he seen so much damage caused in so little time. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, 
Lviv, Ukraine. The Labor Department says consumer prices jumped sharply again last month. NPR Scott Horsley reports high-priced gasoline fueled much of the increase. A big spike in gasoline prices following Russia's invasion of Ukraine pushed annual inflation to its highest level in more than four decades. Consumer prices in March were 8.5% higher than a year ago. Gasoline prices were up 48%, while groceries cost 10% more. Prices rose 1.2% just between February and March, with gasoline accounting for more than half that monthly increase. Used car prices, which were a big driver of inflation last year, fell in March, but overall prices are still climbing much faster than the Federal Reserve would like. The central bank has started raising interest rates in an effort to bring inflation under control and has signaled more aggressive rate hikes may be necessary. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Stocks recovered some of their lost ground today, though still ended the session lower. The Dow down 87 points. The Nasdaq closed down 40 points. The S&P was down 15 points today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston police say there is no known threat to the public transit system following this morning's shootings on the New York subway system. However, Superintendent Gregory Long says local commuters will notice a bigger police presence around the T through the weekend and possibly for the Boston Marathon. In terms of Monday, um, you know, depending on what kind of information we have and intelligence, we'll adjust uh, our assets accordingly uh, around the marathon. Long says if you do see something out of the ordinary, call 911. Massachusetts will receive more than $7.5 million in additional funding to reimburse some of the cost of responding to the coronavirus. The FEMA funding covers expenses for things such as administering testing and providing meals for vulnerable populations during the pandemic. So far, the federal government has reimbursed more than $913 million of pandemic expenses in the state. The average price of gasoline in Massachusetts continues to drop slightly. According to AAA Northeast, the statewide average dropped one cent since yesterday to $4.10 a gallon. Red Sox topped the Tigers out in Detroit today, 5-3, to three, and in the forecast. Look for a nice evening ahead, then partly cloudy skies overnight tonight. Should be in the mid-40s for tomorrow, partly sunny skies. Look for highs just about 68 to almost 70 degrees, then clouds return for Thursday. 63 degrees now in the Boston area at 5.05. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CrowdStrike. Their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft at home, at the office, and everywhere in between. More at CrowdStrike.com NPR. More on the attack on the Brookline subway system this morning coming up next on WBR's All Things Considered. First, we are just taking a little bit of time out to ask you to please make your pledge of support to WBUR to keep stories, stories that are uh, hard to hear sometimes and uh, and difficult to present sometimes. Keep them coming to you as with all the stories that are worth your time to listen to. They come with your pledge. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. I'm Lisa Mullins with Amory Sievertson. That's right. We have a triple match on the table right now in this uh, spring fundraiser, the second to last day of our spring fundraiser. So, you know, do not miss out on this opportunity. We don't know if something like this is going to come along again. So don't miss your chance to have your money go three times as far for WBUR. Think about that for a minute, Lisa. How often in life does someone say, 
Yeah, you know that you know that work that you put in. I'm gonna triple it. I'm gonna I'm it's gonna go three times as far. Man, if that worked with exercise, how great <laughs> would that be? This just doesn't happen that often. It's a remarkable opportunity to have your impact be tripled for the station that you count on. You know, you might be driving home from work right now. You might be driving to work right now if that's the kind of schedule that that you keep. And WBUR is a constant companion. It's a steady source of information. It's a sobering source of information. It helps you understand our world, our community, our region here in Massachusetts. WBUR, we're we're all so lucky to have it, and we're so lucky to have listeners like the Generous Group that have stepped up to triple your contribution. Your $10 a month becomes $30 a month. Your $50 a month becomes $150 a month. Your $2,000 contribution becomes $6,000 for WBUR. That's the beauty of this Everyone just gives what they can. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call to make your gift or go to WBUR.org. Um, just wanted to emphasize, is the Brooklyn, New York subway system um, that where the attack was today. We'll be hearing more about that in a couple of minutes. Um, but once again, given, uh, based on what Amory was saying about the triple match, really, it's these things don't come along very often. So we really want to take advantage of them when they do, because there are some generous listeners who said, yes, this is important to us. And we know there are stresses on budgets. If you cannot afford to give, we totally understand that. We're glad that you're listening anyway. And if there is a time that you have to give later on when it's easier on your budget, please do. For everybody else who listens to WBUR can give, this is the time to do it as we triple your gift to WBUR. So if you can swing $10 a month, it becomes $30. $100 a month becomes $300 for WBUR. Before we go back to All Things Considered, please make your pledge of support this fundraiser is over tomorrow and we would love to be able to make our budget to continue to bring you the strongest news possible credible news that does not have strings attached with commercial editorial influence we are beholden to you our listeners 1-800-909-9287-wbur.org get your money tripled right now thank you From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Daniel Estrin in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. At least 16 people are injured following a shooting at a subway station in New York City this morning. Five are in critical condition but stable. The shooting occurred at the station at 36th Street in Sunset Park, a neighborhood in Brooklyn, during the morning rush hour. And the shooter remains at large. NPR's Jasmine Garst is at the scene and joins us now. Hi, Jasmine. Hi. Hi. Okay, it looks like there's a little bit of a delay with us. So what more do we know about what happened this morning? Well, we know that it happened right before 8.30 a.m., which is the... The, the, the peak commute hours and uh, and the gunman um, at, on the end train as it approached 36th Avenue station here in Sunset Park in Brooklyn, he donned a gas mask and opened a canister of what released a lot of smoke, confusing people, throwing people into a panic. And then he started shooting um, at the end train and also people on the platform. Earlier today, I I spoke to a man here in Sunset Park, uh, Rodrigo Miranda, and he told me what he witnessed. Una vez de dejarla, crucé la calle y fue cuando la gente empezó a salir corriendo del subway. Este, bueno, se empezaron a escuchar ruidos, los policías empezaron a llegar y 
And what he's saying is he dropped his daughter off at school that morning and he started heading to work in the direction of the N-Train subway station. And suddenly people start pouring out in a panic. There is a lot of noise and the police start rushing in. And as for the rest, I mean, this neighborhood has just gone into lockdown. Well, this alleged gunman, as we said, this person's still at large. What do we know about him so far? It is considered an active shooter situation. Um, The gunman has been described as a black man, hefty build, around five foot five. And officials are encouraging anyone who saw anything um, to please provide tips. Uh, At the time of the shooting, he was wearing a gray hoodie and and one of those um, construction style vests. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yeah, I mean, he's at large. So this is very much an active shooter situation. And, and while you've had the chance to talk to people in Sunset Park, near where all of this happened, what are you hearing from them? Well, this happened during peak commute hours. There were uh, a lot of kids going to school, uh, people going to work, and the neighborhood has kind of, you know, shut down. Uh, this is a neighborhood that is largely working class, um, very Hispanic neighborhood. I spent most of the day with parents who were waiting for their kids because schools went into lockdown. Um, And that's how I met Rodrigo Miranda, the man we heard from earlier. He was picking up his seven-year-old daughter, Alexandra Miranda, and she described to me the scene inside the school when the shooting happened. And what she's saying is that she was told she had to be locked in and no one would come in or out. Teachers couldn't come in or out because something was happening on the outside. And what Mr. Miranda was telling me is that he's a little bit concerned about how to explain what happened here. I can't even imagine. That is NPR's Jasmine Garts joining us from Sunset Park in Brooklyn. Thank you so much, Jasmine. Thank you. Russian President Vladimir Putin addressed the public today. He said peace talks with Ukraine are at a, quote, dead end. This comes as Russia prepares for a new offensive in eastern Ukraine. Military experts say Ukraine has been remarkably nimble countering Russia, but the upcoming offensive is expected to be much more focused and much more bloody. And that raises questions about Ukraine's ability to withstand this next phase of war. NPR's Brian Mann is in Ukraine's western city of Lviv, and he joins us now. Hi, Brian. Hi, Daniel. Tell us more about what Putin said today. Well, he described Russia's goals in Ukraine as noble and said peace negotiations are now at a dead end. You know, the world's seen growing evidence in recent days of atrocities against civilians committed by Russian troops, but Putin described those allegations as fake. He said those accusations actually make future peace talks impossible. Brian, another big development today. Ukrainian officials say they've arrested one of Putin's closest allies in Ukraine. Um, Tell us more about that. Yeah, Viktor Medvedchuk is an oligarch who's been closely linked to Putin for years. Putin is actually the godfather of Medvedchuk's daughter. Uh, Medvedchuk was one of the most influential pro-Russian figures here. Ukrainian officials haven't released a lot of details about this, but say he was captured during a nighttime raid, and they've released a photograph of Medvedchuk wearing a military uniform. Wow. Meanwhile, there is still fighting in the southeastern port city of Mariupol. Uh, The battle there has not stopped since the war began. So what is the latest from Mariupol? 
It's desperate. Fighting has been intense for the last 48 days. Ukrainian forces trapped there posted on Facebook that they've run out of supplies and haven't been reinforced. Mm. The mountain of wounded makes up almost half of the crew, the Marines said in their post. Gradually, we are coming to an end. The Ukrainian Marines predict the rest of their force will be killed or captured soon if they don't get more assistance. And this comes a day after Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, said Mariupol has been effectively destroyed with tens of thousands of people killed there by the Russians. Wow. And as we said, Russia is expected to escalate its campaign in eastern Ukraine, and Russia appointed a new general to lead the offensive. So what are Ukrainians doing to prepare? Yeah, Zelensky talked about this in his latest address and said the Ukrainian military is scrambling right now to shore up frontline units that will face this attack. He said despite weeks of sometimes intense fighting, their forces are still battle ready. But Zelensky also acknowledged that his army lacks a lot of the things, the heavy equipment that these frontline fighters need. Zelensky says that Ukraine can resist this attack and even lift the siege of Mariupol, but they need jets and heavy armored vehicles and artillery. Huh. Brian, what do we know about who is actually leading Ukraine's military in this fight? Yeah, he's a guy who's kept a very low profile during this war. His name is General Valery Zaluzhny. Uh, I spoke with Johan Michel, a military analyst at the International Institute of Strategic Studies, and he told me Zaluzhny, who trained with NATO forces, has been working with other Ukrainian commanders for years to prepare his country's army for this conflict, since 2014, in fact, and that's when Russia invaded Crimea. Michel told me that Zaluzhny has helped produce a fighting force with really high morale that's also nimble and able to adapt quickly. It's almost a showcase of how, how you should adapt to a situation in, in wartime. It's a really impressive organization that has been able to achieve that. Michelle told me that Ukraine created a quick response force within the army that's super mobile, that can respond quickly when there are problem areas. They've been rotating soldiers home to rest so they'll be fresh when this offensive begins. And they've been working to get a lot of those new weapons provided by the U.S. and other countries into soldiers' hands. Well, is Ukraine prepared for this next uh, more violent phase of war? Yeah, it's a big question now. And I asked Johan Michel about this. He says everyone, including himself, underestimated Ukraine's strength. But Michel also thinks this next phase of the war will be a much harder test, especially if Russians stop making those big strategic mistakes. So if the Russians are getting better with more achievable objectives, the fight will be difficult for the Ukraine armed forces. But I'm saying difficult, not impossible. And I should say, Daniel, all the Ukrainians I talk to here say they are convinced that their country will win this fight. NPR's Brian Mann in Lviv, Ukraine. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. London police have fined British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, the UK's Chancellor of the Exchequer. They've been fined an undisclosed amount for attending a party in violation of the government's own COVID lockdown rules. This is the first time police have found that a sitting prime minister broke the law. Johnson addressed the matter briefly today. Let me say immediately that I've paid the fine and I once again offer a full apology. Now, this could threaten Johnson's grip on power, but as NPR's Frank Langfitt reports from London, the war in Ukraine seems to have bought the prime minister some time. 
When the scandal broke in December, Johnson insisted no one had violated any rules. But when it became increasingly clear that government staff had held at least a dozen parties when such gatherings were banned, many were furious. Here's Douglas Ross, who leads Johnson's Conservative Party in Scotland, speaking back in January. If the Prime Minister or anyone misleads Parliament, you cannot come back from that. That is a resigning matter. It's also breaking the law. What a difference several months make. Since then, Russia has invaded Ukraine. Johnson was a tough and early critic of President Vladimir Putin, and his government has sent thousands of anti-tank missiles to Ukraine's army. Today, in a sign of shifting attitudes, Douglas Ross reversed himself on Britain's Sky TV. I previously called for the Prime Minister to step down, but since then we have seen something that I never thought I would see in my lifetime, another war in Europe. All of that, for me, changes the situation. Some lawmakers in Johnson's party say switching prime ministers during a war makes little sense, and many praise his handling of the conflict. Ross cited the prime minister's recent trip to Kyiv, where Johnson, dressed in a coat and tie, walked around the city center with President Volodymyr Zelensky. A local resident even stopped Johnson to thank him for Britain's support. Johnson is also helped by the fact that his main political rival for the prime minister's job, Sunak, is also caught up in the scandal. Katie Balls, the deputy political editor at The Spectator magazine, thinks Johnson will survive for now, but she's waiting to see how his party responds. There are MPs coming out to say they support Boris Johnson, but there's also a lot of MPs who are not tweeting or doing media. And I think the silence is something that is going to um, lead to nerves in Downing Street over the next few days. The political fallout may become clear in early May, when Britons head to the polls for local elections. Frank Langford, NPR News, London. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, a slide for stocks on Wall Street today. The Dow fell about a quarter of a percent, 88 points to close at 34,220. S&P dropped about a third of a percent to close at 43.97. And the Nasdaq fell for a third straight day, down three-tenths of a percent, to finish the day at 13,372. All the details coming up tonight on Marketplace. It starts at 6.30. In the forecast, look for a few clouds moving in overnight tonight, temperatures moving down to the mid-40s. Then for tomorrow, some sunshine, some clouds, with high temperatures almost reaching 70 degrees, and clouds are back for Thursday. It is 63 degrees now in the Boston area at 521. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News. Fighting misinformation can be tricky. We question people in power. We want to hear from people in power, but we want to deliver their statements in context, surrounded by facts, which is what you deserve. It takes resources to get it right, and we can't do that without your support. Help us by giving to this station. Thanks. Please give right now. It does take resources. And right now, your resources that you donate at 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org will be tripled. Emory Sievertson, tell us about it. That's right. We have a triple match on the table, which means that if you give $10 a month to WBUR, if that's what feels right for your budget, just by making the call right now, that will become $30 a month for WBUR. If you can make a contribution of $50 a month, that'll become $150 for WBUR right now. It's not magic. It's a group of generous listeners who have stepped up to do their part for WBUR to encourage you to do yours. Because as we just heard Steve Inskeep say, you know, 
know, not only do the facts matter, you deserve them. You deserve to have a fact-based independent news source that helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. You deserve to turn on the radio and know that you can trust what you're hearing, that that the stories have been reported and researched in depth. They've been fact-checked, that there's no outside influence shaping the way that we cover the news. We bring you the truth, and it matters. So step up right now, give in any amount to protect that, to protect WBUR as a resource, because your money will be tripled. $1,000 becomes $3,000 for WBUR only until 7 o'clock today, just by calling one 800 909-9287 or giving online at WBUR.org. As Amory says, when it comes to funding journalism, where the money comes from matters a lot. WBUR gets its largest share of its funding from listener members. That means you. And that gives us editorial independence that other kinds of funding do not provide. So when you give monthly to WBUR, that gift, which will right now be tripled, allows us to report the truth without fear or favor. Please give monthly if you can at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Once again, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And when you do call, you will automatically be entered in to win two tickets to see Paul McCartney at Fenway Park on June 8th. This is such a popular ticket that uh, actually they added a second show. This one's for June 8th at Fenway. It's part of his Got Back Tour. And you have a chance to win two seats if you call right now, one 800 909-9287-WBUR.org. Another uh, thank you gift we have on the table right now, a set of four passes to Zoo New England. So that's either the Franklin Park Zoo in Boston, if that's closer to you, or the Stone Zoo in Zonum. In Stoneham, excuse me. The Stone Zoo. I liked your way better. In Stoneham. <laughs> That's as our thanks for a gift of $10 a month to WBUR. But remember, with a triple match on the table, your $10 a month for WBUR becomes $30 a month for WBUR. Do not miss out on this opportunity to have your money, your dollars, and your impact for WBUR go three times as far. Call one 800 909-9287 or give online at WBUR.org. This should be a huge incentive. Really, the biggest incentive of all is all that you hear on WBUR. Story coming up about the National Democratic Committee considering an overhaul of its presidential nominating process this week. This story and all that you hear are, are stories that we hope you think are worth your paying for. Whatever the amount is, it will be tripled right now when you call 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Get your monthly gift tripled, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. If you've already given during this fund drive, thank you so much. It ends tomorrow, so please make your call now if you haven't given. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Thank you again. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help create a comprehensive plan for a client's full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. 
President Biden is making his first trip as president to Iowa today, a state known for kicking off the presidential nominating process every four years. But Democratic Party officials are opening the door to significant changes to how the party picks its presidential candidates. NPR's Juana Summers reports. The Democratic National Committee is considering shredding the party's traditional calendar, in which Iowa's caucuses go first, followed by primaries in New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. We cannot be stuck in a 50-year-old calendar when we're trying to win 2022 and 2024 elections, that it has to be an ever-evolving process. That was Leah Daughtry, a member of the Rules and Bylaws Committee, speaking at a virtual meeting last month. She's backing a proposal that says states and territories that want to hold their contests before Super Tuesday in early March would all need to apply. The potential changes come after years of criticism of Iowa and New Hampshire. In 2020, neither state's winner went on to win the presidential nomination, and many argue that those two largely white states are not diverse enough to lead the nominating process. Ross Wilburn, the chair of Iowa's Democratic Party, pushed back. He said that Democrats need to show that they can address the needs of a diversifying rural America. Nationally, if Democrats can't figure out how to talk to Iowans, then we're in big trouble as a party. And he also pointed to the fact that his state has given flight to upstart politicians, including women and candidates of color, like the winner in 2008. Again, don't forget, there would not be a President Obama without Iowa. There just simply wouldn't. The DNC is considering prioritizing states that can show they have a diverse electorate, competitiveness in the general election, and states that hold primaries not caucuses. Iowa showed the disaster of a caucus in the last election. That's Congresswoman Debbie Dingell of Michigan, making references there to logistical challenges in 2020 that made it hard for Iowa to name its winner. While the DNC proposal has yet to see a vote, Dingell is already leading a push for Michigan to get early status. It's a state that reflects the great diversity of our country. We have urban areas, We have rural areas. We have manufacturing. We have farming. She says her state's politics are also part of the reason why it's well-positioned to be a part of the early window. President Biden won Michigan by a narrow margin in 2020, and former President Trump by an even slimmer one in 2016. New Jersey State Party Chair Leroy Jones says that his state's diversity, as well as its relatively compact size, make it a good fit for the early window. You have a, uh, a collaboration of population, of diversity, of tourism, of transportation ease. And, you know, I think that, uh, you know, has a particular value added to the process. Democrats in Iowa and New Hampshire make a similar argument. They are small states and give candidates a chance to break through before moving on to larger states where campaigning is more expensive. Dingle said that shouldn't be an argument against her state. The reality is you can do retail politics in Michigan and should do retail politics. Why should two disparate small states that don't have reflect the diversity of this country be the ones that presidential candidates go into their homes? The DNC's Rules and Bylaws Committee could vote on this proposal as soon as this week. Juana Summers, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. SemesterOff.com. Live from NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. New York City Mayor Eric Adams says he's confident authorities will find the gunman who opened fire in a subway station in Brooklyn this morning. We know that this was a a very clear act of bringing some form of terror to our passengers, and it's not going to go uh, unaccounted for. We're going to find this person and we're going to bring him to justice. Mayor Adams speaking to member station WNYC today. A total of 16 people were injured. Ten were shot, including five said to be severely wounded but expected to survive. Six others were hurt in the panic after a subway car started filling with smoke. The actor and comedian Gilbert Gottfried has died. Gottfried's family confirmed his death today on Twitter, saying he died after a long illness. The AP is quoting a statement from Gottfried's publicist that he died from a genetic muscle disease that can lead to an abnormal heartbeat. Gottfried was 67 years old. South Dakota House lawmakers have impeached the state attorney general. South Dakota Public Broadcasting's Lee Strubinger reports on today's impeachment vote over a September 2020 car crash that took the life of a pedestrian. South Dakota's heavily Republican House of Representatives voted narrowly in favor of impeaching Republican State Attorney General Jason Roundsburg. Law enforcement concluded Roundsburg was distracted when he struck and killed pedestrian Joe Beaver. Roundsburg has repeatedly said he did not know what he hit. The impeachment articles conclude Roundsburg misled law enforcement and used the office to benefit himself in the investigation. Roundsburg is now temporarily prohibited from exercising the duties of his office. The state Senate has to wait at least 20 days before holding a trial on whether Roundsburg should be removed from office. For NPR News, I'm Lee Strubinger in Pierre, South Dakota. A major blizzard is slamming neighboring North Dakota with snow, high winds, and whiteout conditions. Meteorologists say the storm could last into Thursday and dump as much as 30 inches of snow. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston is beefing up security around public transportation after today's subway shooting in New York. Authorities here are taking that step as they prepare for a busy marathon weekend. WBUR's Alex Ashlock reports. Mayor Michelle Wu says public safety officials continue to monitor the situation in New York as they finalize the security plan for Monday's marathon here. MBTA Police Chief Kenneth Green spoke at City Hall this afternoon. To reassure our riders, we have increased the number of uniformed officers on the system and deployed additional explosive detection K-9 teams to perform protective sweeps. Boston Police Department Superintendent and Chief Gregory Long says there is no known credible threat to the marathon, which has had enhanced security since the 2013 bombings. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Alex Ashlock. State transportation leaders are asking drivers to pay more attention as we enter road construction season in Massachusetts. State police say they responded to 681 work zone crashes last year and at least 89 crashes so far this year. AAA's Mary McGuire says it's essential drivers in these zones slow down. Imagine how you would feel if your office were in proximity to drivers traveling 65 or 70 miles an hour a few feet away from you. Officials with the State Department of Transportation say speeding is a factor in more than 37 percent of all fatal crashes in Massachusetts. 
The chief financial officer at the Cambridge-based biotech company Moderna is retiring. David Moline will transition out of the role starting in May. Originally, he planned to retire two years ago. Instead, he joined Moderna early in the pandemic to help the company as it developed a COVID vaccine. The so-called Superman building in Providence is being redeveloped. Rhode Island Governor Dan McKee says the owners plan to turn the 430-foot vacant tower into offices, apartments, and shops. The building got its nickname because it looked like the Daily Planet newspaper headquarters from the old Superman TV show. Its last tenant moved out nearly a decade ago. In sports, Red Sox beat Detroit 5-3 to today. In the forecast, look for sunshine through the evening hours. A nice night tonight, just a few clouds around in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, sunshine mixed with clouds, about 67 for high. Thursday, lots of clouds dipping to about 63. 66 in Boston now at 535. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Threats to democracy make an informed public critical to America's future. WBUR will always be free thanks to listeners who give voluntarily. Give monthly to give real journalism a strong future. Here's how. By calling 1-800-909-9287 or going to WBUR.org before we go back to the news and calling right now. We are only here because of your contributions in the past. We will be here in the future because of your contributions right now. And we have a special reason to ask you to make a contribution right at this moment. Amory Siebertson is yeah. with me right now. Yes, and I'm clearly uh, so eager to talk about it that I'm, I'm stepping all over you here, Lisa. But we have a triple match on the table. So this is the source of my excitement. What does that mean? That means that any gift that you make to WBUR right now will be tripled. I'm not kidding. It's not a joke. This is how this works. We have a generous group of listeners who are able to do a little bit more for WBUR, and they are doing, uh, they've put a match on the table to encourage you to do your part. So if you give $10 a month right now to WBUR, it'll become $30 a month. If you can give a a larger one-time gift of, say, $500, it'll become $1,500. If you can give $5,000, it'll become $15,000 for WBUR. this is not a drill. This is a triple match on this, the second to last day of our spring fundraiser. And we're hoping that you will help us finish strong with a gift that will be tripled by calling 1-800-909-9287 or going to WBUR.org. And, you know, Lisa, one of the things that I really appreciate as both someone who works at WBUR and also listens to mm-hmm. WBUR is just the breadth, the variety of stories that you hear, including our incredible arts coverage. Tanya Rally is the assistant managing editor of our arts and culture uh, desk at WBUR, and she spoke to us about how our arts coverage adds value to your life. This is a, a great way to find out about things happening in the city that are just intellectually stimulating, that are also just enlightening, and in a way, I suppose that also just sort of feed the soul. I mean, as things in the world have felt so dire, we've been living with the pandemic now for going into our third year. And it's just good to remember um, how important art is in these times. And so this is what we're interested in offering to our audiences. 
WBUR feeds the soul as well as the mind. You know that is true. You know that you've heard things on WBUR that just kind of make you smile when you need it the most. I need it. We need it. We all need it. So why not give back to that right now with a contribution in any amount that will be tripled when you call 1-800-909-9287 or make your gift at WBUR.org. So your gift of $15 becomes 45 If you can give $150, it becomes 450 for us right now when you give on a monthly basis. So please do it right now. I think, um, if I'm not wrong, if you give a one-time gift of $1,000 or more, that too will be tripled. This That's goes correct. on. It's fantastic as long as the money holds out. So please make the call right now, one 800 9287 You were talking, Emery, about the vast array of stories that we bring, including the art stories. Also, stories about the environment. Bruce Gellerman does such a fantastic job covering that. We have a story coming up in just a couple of minutes on All Things Considered, asking the question, how much energy does it take to have a good and healthy life? A new Stanford University study says a lot less than the average American is using right now. Some of these stories are stories that you'll talk about at night around the dinner table, um, around the figurative water cooler, if if you have a water cooler both at work and at home, since so many people <laughs> are working remotely these days. So whatever you listen to WBUR for, whatever touches your mind, touches your soul, please make a phone call in support of it right now, because that is how we keep it coming to you. You make up the vast majority of our operating budget. So do your part right now while we have this triple match on the table. That's right. You know, when you turn on WBUR, there's no paywall. There's there's no little voice that comes on that says, you know, insert $10 to hear the next story. That's not how public media works. And that's because we believe that this information, whether it's, you know, an art story, an environmental story, politics, the latest news out of Ukraine, the latest news uh, with the subway shooting in, in New York, we know that you need to know what's happening. You need to know what it means for you. That should be free. The facts should be free, but they're not free to produce. You know, it takes a whole team here of reporters, uh, producers, engineers, fact checkers. You know, there, there's so much more that goes on behind the scenes to, to hopefully bring you an effortless uh, infer- stream of information that you can trust. So give back to that. Support that in any amount, especially right now when your contribution will be tripled. Your impact will be tripled. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. In fact, the majority of what happens at WBUR happens behind the scenes. Um, so understand the amount of work, the amount of labor it takes to bring you every minute of what you hear on WBUR. Please make your pledge of support at 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org and you will be entered in to win tickets to see Paul McCartney at Fenway Park on June 8th. Thank you so much for your support. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Daniel Estrin in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. 
During this morning's rush hour, a gunman on a subway train in Brooklyn set off a smoke canister and then opened fire. At least 16 people were injured. The incident adds to a jump in violent crime in the city, including in the subway system, during this pandemic. Meanwhile, subway ridership remains well below pre-pandemic levels. We wanted to hear from someone with deep knowledge of the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, which runs New York's mass transit. John Samuelson is the international president of the Transport Workers Union and a member of the MTA board, as well as a lifelong New Yorker. Welcome. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being with us. I understand you're a Brooklyn native. You still live there. Can I just ask, like, what went through your mind when you first heard about what happened this morning? Well, I, I live in Southern Brooklyn, and my, both of my boys, I have a 19-year-old and a 20-year-old boy that take the subway every day. My oldest son happens to take the R train into downtown Brooklyn. So, of course, the first thing on my mind is whether or not my son was, was going to school today. And yeah. as it turned out, he wasn't. And I'm, I'm thankful to God that he wasn't. Uh, so that was the first thing. And the second thing is these New York City transit workers that acted so heroically today evacuating the multiple train stations, uh, whether any of them got hurt. And, and also, thankfully, none of the workers were injured. Well, as a union representative, I'm curious, do you think the MTA is even remotely prepared for incidents like this, given that there has been a rise in transit crime in New York City recently? How do you feel? So there's, there's been a rise in crime. The, the MTA unto itself, uh, not that I like to be in a position of defending the MTA. They're, they're the people that I'm usually opposed to. Mm -hmm. But it's, the MTA is not responsible for policing this system. The city of New York is responsible for policing the system. Um, over the last several years, the policing of the system has deteriorated terribly. Uh, with the election of our new mayor, Eric Adams, that's beginning to change. There's a commitment to increase, and, and it has been happening, increase the uniform presence in, in the system. So I was just going to ask if you have noticed an effect, because yes, Mayor Eric Adams has announced greater policing of subway crimes, both major and minor crimes. You feel those efforts are making some impact. I feel if the if the impact is not tangible yet, the impact will become very noticeable soon. A uniform police presence in the subway, and I'm not talking about at the fare box. I'm not talking about the police um, watching out for 17-year-old kids engaging in mischief. I'm talking about cops actually riding the trains where our workers are and where New York City transit riders are. And there's a commitment to make that happen. They've increased the level of uniform police dramatically, so it's going to have an effect. Well, ultimately, New York City is still a very different city than it was 20, 30 years ago when crime was a lot higher. Are you concerned that what happened today is going to further discourage people from riding the subway? I mean, ridership still hasn't gotten back to pre-pandemic levels. I think it would be foolish to believe that this would not have an impact. Of course, just as we were getting back on our legs, just as riders were coming back into the system, this was the worst possible time for it to happen. This is an anomaly. It's a it's it's very likely a lone wolf gunman, um, a lunatic that came onto the train. And the New York City has dealt with these these type of things in the past. And mm -hmm. I believe we'll work with work our way through it and folks will continue to get back on the subway. That's my hope. And you feel personally safe still to continue riding the subway as a New Yorker. Yeah, I feel safe. My 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 children ride the subway every day. I have conversations with them about how to protect themselves on the subway. Always stand near a conductor is the number one uh, advice that I give them. Always ride the conductor car. And the, conduct the conductors proved her heroic today in the evacuation of the system. It wouldn't have happened 
without right. the train crews. That is John Samuelson, a member of the MTA board. Thank you very much for joining us today. Ah, thanks so much for having me. Living a happy, healthy life takes energy. A new Stanford University study looked at just how much energy it requires. The study found that Americans use well over the necessary amount. NPR's Laura Benshoff is here to unpack what those findings mean for climate change. Hey, Laura. Hey there. Hi. So first of all, what is the measure of a good life? I guess you could call that a philosophical question. But seriously, how did the researchers measure the amount of energy needed to live a good life? They looked around the world at the building blocks for a long and healthy life using the United Nations goals, things like having enough food, access to electricity, life expectancy, and happiness, and at how much energy that takes. And what they found is that the magic number is about 75 gigajoules of energy per person per year. And one gigajoule is roughly the amount of energy contained in eight gallons of gasoline. Now, for comparison, Americans use 284 gigajoules a year per capita, so nearly four times that sweet spot. Hmm. Okay, so we know that scientists have been warning that Americans' energy habits need to change in order to avoid the worst outcomes of climate change. So what does this new research say about what kinds of habits that we need to change? I'm going to let the lead author, Stanford environmental scientist Rob Jackson, answer that one. The world can't support seven or eight billion people living at a level of consumption that we have in the United States. It's not possible, regardless of whether everything is clean, green infrastructure. So there's a lot of focus on changing where energy comes from. That's what he's referring to, switching from coal and gas to renewable sources, for example. But this study emphasizes the demand side and these kinds of overlooked but really important tools for reducing energy demand, such as conservation and efficiency. And the study makes the case that as Americans, we really can trim that demand and not actually be any worse off. Huh, okay, so what can Americans do to use less energy? There are things people can do, there are things the government can do, and there are things that the government can help people do. Hmm. For example, transportation is the biggest contributor to carbon emissions in the U.S. and the second biggest user of energy. Jackson says on the individual level, people can choose to take fewer car trips, fewer plane trips. But another expert I spoke with, Sarah Ladislaw, works with the group RMI to sort of speed up the clean energy transition in the U.S. And she says the government can make those decisions easier by investing in modes of transportation. More sort of bus rapid transit or metros, but also like more bike paths and places to walk. And like all of that is policies that are designed to try and enable people to make those better decisions. She says it's exciting that the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act has funds for these things. Another area to reduce energy demand is in your house. The International Energy Agency estimated that Americans can cut our home energy consumption by between 15 and 20 percent by changing behaviors. Things like hanging clothes to dry or heating or cooling our homes room by room rather than all at once. And Ladislaw says this type of efficiency is just another area governments can incentivize people to make okay. better choices. We'll end there. NPR's Laura Benchoff, thanks. Thank you.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Something really unusual has happened in Florida with congressional redistricting. The state legislature has thrown up its hands and is now asking Governor Ron DeSantis to take care of it. This comes after the governor vetoed the first set of maps. The move has left many wondering who wins and who loses and what the new maps will eventually look like. NPR's Greg Allen joins us now to explain what all of this means. Hi, Greg. Hi, Elsa. All right. So in Florida and, you know, like in a lot of other states, the responsibility of drawing new congressional maps belongs to the legislature. Like usually they want this job. So I don't get it. Why is the legislature now giving the job to the governor? Well, um, you know, as you know, every 10 years, the states have to drop these new congressional maps after the census. Mm-hmm. And Florida is one of just a couple of states that haven't completed the job yet. Republican lawmakers took a very a careful approach to drawing up the new maps when they started the job early, early this spring. That's because they remembered a year ago, uh, a decade ago when they spent lots of money and years in court over maps that were eventually thrown out. So the maps they came up with were ones that they believe complied with state and federal law and would withstand court challenges. But Governor Ron DeSantis didn't like them. He says the law has changed over the last decade because of court decisions that have weakened the Federal Voting Rights Act. And he wants the maps to reflect that. Okay, so now the legislature is like, all right, you handle it then. Has Governor DeSantis said what he even wants on these maps? Well, we'll have to see what the maps look like when they probably are produced early next week. His office previously has drawn up maps that weaken or eliminate two African-American voting districts in Florida. One is in North Florida, running from Jacksonville to Tallahassee. The other is in the Orlando area. At a news conference today, DeSantis was vague about what the final map will look like, saying his staff is still working on it. It will, though have uh, North Florida drawn in a race-neutral manner. I mean, we are not going to have a 200-mile gerrymander that divvies up people based on the color of their skin. Huh. Well, what do you think? What impact will that have on what Florida's congressional delegation, like what it will look like? Right. Well, if you look at the current delegation, it's 27 members of Congress, 16 Republican, 11 Democrats. And because of a population increase, Florida is now gaining a seat in Congress. Maps produced earlier by DeSantis would likely give Republicans at least three more seats than they have now. And as we've been talking, these maps will be challenged in court. Florida's Constitution prohibits maps from being drawn in a way that decreases the voting power of minorities. It also prohibits them from having maps that benefit a certain political party or an incumbent, you know, what's been known as partisan gerrymandering. Mm-hmm. Michael McDonald, a redistricting expert and professor at the University of Florida, says that may be a problem for Governor DeSantis when his maps are challenged in court. As the racial component of this map is revealed or unwound as part of DeSantis's new maps, there may be also an increase in partisan gerrymandering. And that could also trip up the map in review by the Florida Supreme Court, because eventually it's going to go there. Great. Okay. So legal challenges are inevitable. And if a challenge is successful, Greg, would these maps just get thrown out as well? Well, probably not before the election, not until we have to have new members of Congress who are voted into office. Michael McDonald says for DeSantis and other Republicans who want to regain a majority in the House of Representatives, politically speaking, this has turned out to be a good strategy. They're probably going to get whatever maps they want for the 2022 elections and maybe even one or two elections beyond that before the courts may actually intervene and require different districts for Florida. You know, uh, legal challenges would move first through the state courts here in Florida and then possibly move to the federal system. The U.S. Supreme Court, though, has said that even if a lower court finds there's problems with the maps, it's too late to order new maps to be drawn before the next election. That is NPR's Greg Allen in Miami. Thank you, Greg. You're welcome.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. My name is Leila Faldin, and I'm one of the hosts of Morning Edition and the Up First podcast. I started as an overnight newspaper reporter at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, found myself on a plane to Baghdad a year later covering the impact of a U.S. invasion, occupation, and war in that country, then traveled across the Middle East and North Africa with short trips into Europe sometimes, and then back to the United States covering this country, its divisions, the things that unite and divide people. I get the privilege and honor of going into people's homes, of listening to people's stories. That's a gift. I think it's incredibly important to keep those in power accountable, but also to spend as much time speaking to those impacted by the policy decisions. That, for me, is what I bring to the host chair. I'm Leila Falden. Support this NPR station today. Here's how to give. By calling this number, 1-800-909-9287, or going online at wbur.org. And please do it right now, because I'm not sure how much more money we have left in this triple match fund. But as soon as it's empty, this offer is off the table. Right now, it's on, though, so please take advantage of it. That's right. It's on for hopefully the next hour, just until 7 o'clock here on WBUR. You have the chance to have your money go three times as far. Your $10 a month, if that's the amount that you can give right now, is going to become $30 a month. If you can give $20 a month right now, that's going to become $60 a month for WBUR. And if you are in a position to give a larger gift right now, we hope that you'll consider doing that because that too will be tripled. So if you can give, say, $3,000, that'll become $9,000 for WBUR by making the phone call right now to show your support, to support the kind of coverage that Leila Fadel was just talking about there, where, you know, we are trying to hold those in power accountable. We want the truth. We want you to have the truth. We believe everybody deserves to have a fact-based news source that they can trust. So power that with your support, a gift in any amount that will be tripled when you make it right Right now by calling 1-800-909-9287 or giving online at WBUR.org. Another thing that Layla mentioned is talking to the people who are affected by events that happen in the news. And that's one of the hallmarks, I think, of NPR and of WBUR. We don't just go to pundits. We don't go to people who are talking heads. We go to the people who are affected by policies, uh, by conflicts. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that we do we try to do with every single story. We are not based on analysis alone. We are not based on opinion, certainly, alone. And there are a lot of stations where opinion masquerades for news. It doesn't here. That's a cheap way of doing news. We do not do it cheaply. And we think that's why we have such a large and devoted following right now because you listen to WBUR, because you do follow us and we hope appreciate us, then please make the call of support because your money will go three times as far with this generous grant on the table right now, 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And by not just giving you, you know, the, the baseline facts, the headlines of what's happening, by finding the people who are affected by issues, by hearing their stories, WBUR just gives you such a richer sense of, you know, what the news means. It's not just, you know, things happening in thin air. It's, it's things happening that have a real impact on your life, on your neighbor's life, on the region, on the country, on the world. And we bring that to you because we know it matters. It makes us all realize that 
you know, we're all a part of something. We're all just moving through the world together, trying to survive and make sense of everything that's happening. WBUR is here for you to bring you those voices, bring you those stories, help you make sense of it. But we need you to be here for us right now. And what that means is making a contribution, taking a stand for the news and information that you get and helping pay for it for not just you, but for everyone who counts on it. Your money will be tripled right now, thanks to generous listeners who have stepped up to encourage you to do your part. So your $1,000, if you can do it for WBUR right now, becomes $3,000. If you can do $5 a month for WBUR, fantastic. That's going to become $15 a month right now for WBUR. So call 1-800-909-9287 or give online, WBUR.org. If you're thinking you wanted to give during this fun drive, um, but you are waiting, don't wait any longer because we have this triple match on the table and the fundraiser is over tomorrow. So we don't want to risk the fact that you may not get to it tomorrow. You may have other things to do. We know your lives are busy. Uh, We hope that you will take advantage of the gift right now, the triple match right now, and make a a contribution of $10 a month, $20 a month if you can. And you will automatically be entered in to win two tickets to see Paul McCartney at Fenway Park June 8th, the Got Back Tour. That sounds fantastic. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. Thank you so much. Still you think that it's all right. Think of what I'm saying. We can work it out and get it straight. I'll say goodnight. We can work it out. We can work it out. Life is very short and there's no time. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens developed for gardens and landscapes nationwide. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. From Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help create a comprehensive plan for a client's full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from the Lemelson Foundation. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden has unveiled plans to allow for the use of ethanol blends of gasoline during the summer months, a season that is not the norm, as part of an effort to help curb rising gas prices. The decision a win for U.S. corn farmers who produce much of the ethanol that goes into E15 gas. President traveled to Iowa today to make the official announcement. The Environmental Protection Agency is planning to issue an emergency waiver to allow E15 gasoline that uses more ethanol from homegrown crops to be sold across the United States this summer in order to increase fuel supply. Allowing for the higher percentage ethanol gas will not bring down prices in a major way, but it will increase supply to some extent, helping offset rising oil prices due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. 
U.S. has already announced plans to release more than 180 million barrels of crude oil to also help moderate rising prices. Russian President Vladimir Putin's closest ally in Ukraine is under arrest after Ukraine's security service conducted a nighttime raid. But as NPR's Yulian Haidar reports, little is known about the circumstances of his arrest. Vladimir Putin is the godfather of Viktor Medvedchuk's daughter, and in this part of the world, that's a relationship closer than family. After Russian-Ukrainian relations soured in 2014, Medvedchuk was among the increasingly few political leaders to defend Russia's actions openly. Medvedchuk's wealth was thought to be somewhere close to a billion dollars, and for years he's been suspected of profiting from the frozen conflict in Ukraine's Donbass region. That's why he'd been under house arrest since last May, but police say Medvedchuk escaped just a couple of days after Russia's invasion in late February. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky posted photos of Medvedchuk on Facebook in a military uniform and in handcuffs with the brief description, details to come. Yulian Haida, NPR News, Lviv. Authorities in New York are continuing their investigation into a shooting incident on a rush hour filled subway train that left 10 people wounded, at least half a dozen others injured. Police said the gunman opened fire on a crowded train in Brooklyn. Actor and comedian Gilbert Gottfried has died after what his family says was a long illness. He was 67 years old, as NPR's Mandalit Del Barco reports. As a stand-up comedian and actor, Gilbert Gottfried was known for his shrill, exaggerated voice and risque, sometimes controversial humor. He was a cast member of Saturday Night Live in the 1980s. (laughs) And his voiceover work included the annoying parrot Iago in Disney's 1992 film Aladdin. You're too kind. I'm in Brooklyn-born Gottfried was also known for his work on Comedy Central and PBS. Until his death, he hosted Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast, Mandalit del Barco, NPR News. Stocks lost ground on Wall Street today. The Dow was down 87 points. The Nasdaq closed down 40 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Charlie Baker is assuring residents there are no signs of any specific threat here in Massachusetts following this morning's attack on a New York subway. More now from WBUR's Steve Brown. The governor says his office is speaking with federal officials as well as local and transit authorities. And while there are no specific threats here, precautions are in place the way they usually are for this time of year. We also have opening day and the marathon coming up and a whole bunch of other things. You will see a heightened level of presence in most of our public transportation uh, activities over the course of the next week or so. The state has increased police presence surrounding the Boston Marathon ever since it was the target of a bombing nine years ago. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Boston city officials are not yet ready to reinstate a mask mandate. Despite an increase in COVID infections, the virus positive rate in the city is 5.4 percent. Mayor Wu says the city will monitor to see if the increase becomes a trend. People flying in and out of Logan Airport are still facing problems. According to FlightAware.com, there have been nearly 100 flights delayed so far today and seven cancellations. Airlines have blamed staffing shortages in part for those disruptions. 68 degrees, a really beautiful evening, a nice night ahead overnight tonight. Just a few clouds around, temperatures in the mid-40s. And for tomorrow, partly sunny skies, highs about 67 for Thursday should be cloudy, maybe the chance of a shower with temperatures about 63 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 6.05.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Vital Projects Fund, supporting the Museum of Modern Art, where a new exhibition explores the drawings of Frédéric Brulé-Bouabre and his quest to share knowledge of the world. Change is modern. More at MoMA.org. I'm Lisa Mullins. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm in the studio with our co-host of WBUR's podcast, Endless Thread, Amory Sievertson. And we have a certain sense of urgency about us right now, more than usual, I think, because we have now 55 minutes to go for before this triple match is over. Amory, the triple match is a mighty nice incentive, and we hope people will call right now, 1-800-909-9287, or go to WBUR.org to take advantage of it. Mighty nice indeed, Lisa, Mm -hmm. because what this means is that your contribution to WBUR will be tripled by a generous group of listeners who have stepped up to encourage you to give to WBUR, because everything you hear on WBUR is made possible by our listeners. So make yourself one of those listeners that pitches in in any amount. If you can give $10 a month right now to WBUR, it'll become $30 a month. If you can give $20 a month to WBUR, it's going to become $60 a month to WBUR just for making that call, just for making that contribution right now, stepping up and saying, this is my public radio station. I make it possible. I'm going to give in whatever amount is right for me. You know what that number is. Do it now. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call or go to WBUR.org with just 53 minutes left to have your contribution tripled. Among the stories you're going to be hearing in the next couple of minutes, we're going to be hearing about Russia, about inflation, a roundup of inflation, the impact of inflation. This is a time... Uh, where the news is unprecedented and unpredictable, but the thing that hasn't changed is that real journalism is essential to our lives and to our democracy. Also, something that hasn't changed, listener support, which is absolutely essential to WBUR. Our listeners who give money voluntarily provide the largest share of our funding, so please give right now and make your money work for you and for us, in fact, because we have a triple match on the table. $10 a month becomes 30 $30 a month becomes 90 and so on. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. You've only heard everything that you've listened to on All Things Considered tonight, or maybe everything that you heard on WBUR if you were listening earlier to Radio Boston, Here and Now, um, On Point, Morning Edition in the Morning. All of that is made possible because other people pitched in. Other listeners stepped up and said, hey, I care about this resource. I I rely on WBUR as a resource. Maybe you wake up with us in the morning. Maybe you go to bed with us at night. Maybe we just keep you sane during your commute, keep you informed, keep you in the know, help you make sense of everything that's happening. Give back to that and give back to that right now in these next 51 minutes or so that you have left to have your contribution tripled. If it's $1,000, it becomes $3,000. If it's $10, it becomes $30 for WBUR. Do it now. 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Thank you. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Daniel Estrin in Washington, where the government has released the latest round of inflation numbers. Consumer prices surged again, up 8.5% in March from a year ago. It's the highest annual increase in more than four decades. 
For months now, we have used superlatives like surged and highest to describe the situation. But those statistics are just that, statistics. They don't illustrate how these price increases are affecting real people, people who were struggling to make ends meet before inflation started to soar. People like Ginger Bryce of Austin, Texas. She was laid off from her job as a hotel concierge at the beginning of the pandemic. And even though she got unemployment, disability, and food stamps, Bryce had to downsize her family's two-bedroom, two-bathroom apartment. That was fun. So we did that. (laughs) They moved to a one-bed, one-bath apartment. It's tight quarters, but she and her two kids made it work. And then in December 2020, Ginger was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, stage four. I started chemo April 1st, 2021. (laughs) So that was terrible and somehow crawled through that. Do not ask me how. Ginger had to hire someone to help with her kids. And then there was another cost. The doctors required that I have a second bathroom. Because when you're in chemo, nobody can use your bathroom. So we then upsized to a three-bedroom, two-bath. Another move, another cost. Now Ginger is doing better and working part-time. It helps to keep food on the table, but with the rising cost of groceries and gas, she has to keep her budget very tight. And Ginger's rent is going up by 20%. So she is moving again. She's only saving about $100 a month with this move. But Ginger says she doesn't worry about things she can't control. Cancer taught her that. I just manage... What's in front of me? For me, it's like I'm not really worried that much about the future. You know, we just roll with the punches. Ginger Bryce of Austin, Texas, talking about what it's like trying to make ends meet in the middle of historic inflation. We're going to talk about the economics and politics of this with NPR's Scott Horsley and NPR's Kelsey Snell. Welcome to you both. Hello. Good with you. Scott, let's start with you. Prices jumped 1.2% just between February and March. What is going on? That's right, Daniel. Just when you think prices can't go much higher, they go higher. Uh, As you said, year-over-year inflation is the highest in more than four decades. The monthly increase in March was the highest in 17 years. And more than half that total jump in prices last month came at the gas pump. Uh, we know the price of gasoline hit an all-time high after Russia invaded Ukraine. Yeah. And even though gas prices have come down a bit since then, the average price across the country is still well above $4 a gallon. But it's not just gasoline, right? No, it's not. Uh, grocery prices have also been going up a lot. Some of that's also tied to the war in Ukraine. Both Russia and Ukraine are big wheat producers, and flour prices, for example, have been climbing around the world. But even before the war, uh, the war, food prices were on the way up. Over the last 12 months, grocery prices have jumped by 10 percent. Wow. And food economist David Ortega of Michigan State University says that's the biggest sticker shop at the supermarket in 40 years. We're headed into Easter weekend, right? So we're looking at egg prices are up over 11%. You know, that Easter ham that many Americans will be cooking is up 14%. So it's very real for people here. Now, not everything is more expensive. The price of used cars actually dropped last month after soaring earlier because of the shortage of new cars. 
But that drop in used car prices was more than offset by price increases elsewhere. Uh, rent's been going up, as we heard Ginger Bryce talk about. Airline tickets are getting more expensive. Inflation is spreading throughout the economy. Uh, I got my hair cut this past weekend, and there was a sign in the barbershop warning that prices are going to go up $2 at the first of the month in order oh, to boy. keep pace with inflation. That's a 12.5% increase, although... Uh, after cutting my own hair early in the pandemic, I can tell it's <laughs> worth every penny. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you look good, Scott. But let me turn to you, Kelsey. Um, the White House keeps using this term, Putin's price hike. So the White House very deliberately trying to blame Russia for inflation, at least for gas prices. Is that strategy working? Well, I'll point you to an NPR Ipsos poll conducted last month that showed that roughly a third of all respondents and two-thirds of Republicans blame Biden specifically for inflation. You know, only about 20 percent of all Americans in that poll say they blame Putin for gas and oil prices. Hmm. It's even just a quarter of Democrats who blame Putin. You know, more so they blame big oil and gas companies. But, you know, as Scott's been saying, gas and oil are just one part of inflation and people are really worried about things like the cost of groceries, as we heard. People worry about housing. People worry about new cars. Just about everything right now is more expensive. And people do realize that those price concerns predated the war. Mm. So my colleague Asma Khalid uh, asked White House Press, Sec- Press Secretary Jen Psaki about this yesterday. And here's how she responded. Factually, if you look at the data, the average gas prices are up a dollar, 80 cents to a dollar. It's about a 25%. We've seen increase in gas prices since the start of this invasion. And we know energy prices is a big driver of the inflation data. So Saki says the White House has been talking about inflation for a long time, but they say Russia will be the thing driving this going forward, the big thing driving it going forward. Huh, okay. So Scott, uh, where does inflation go from here? Forecasters think March was probably the peak for annual inflation, unless another war breaks out someplace. Gas prices have started coming down. Uh, We're also coming into a stretch where last year's prices were higher, so the year-over-year comparisons are going to look a little bit better. But even if inflation cools off a bit, prices could stay uncomfortably high. The Federal Reserve has started raising interest rates, uh, and over time, that should help to bring demand back in line with supply. But, you know, there's a long lead time before those rate hikes start to work. So we're likely to be living with higher inflation than most of us are used to for some time to come. And Kelsey, there are politics to this too, right? Um, Are Democrats worried that inflation could hurt their chances of keeping control of Congress in the midterm elections. Oh, absolutely. And they have every reason to be worried. You know, most political strategists will tell you that most people vote based on how they personally feel and the world they personally experience. If people feel like they are being economically harmed and they see that those conditions have gotten worse under Democrats, well, many of them will blame the party in power. You know, Biden is aware of that. That's why he went to uh, Iowa today to talk about gas prices. Hmm. He's going to North Carolina on Thursday to talk about supply chain problems. That said, there are a lot of things that can happen between now and Election Day. And while it's unlikely inflation will suddenly get resolved, that doesn't mean major events won't happen that could alter top political priorities for a lot of voters. That is NPR congressional correspondent Kelsey Snell and chief economic correspondent Scott Horsley. Thank you both. You're welcome. Thanks for having us.
Russia is on the verge of a default on its foreign debt, something that hasn't happened in more than a century since the Russian Revolution. Wide-ranging sanctions and trade restrictions have isolated Russia, but a default would make it even more of a pariah, and it could have lasting effects on the country's economy. For more on this, we're joined now by NPR's David Gura. Hey, David. Hey, Elsa. So can you just explain for us, like, how did Russia get to this point where it's on the edge of default? Well, a lot has happened over the last week. Russia faced a deadline to make interest payments to foreign investors on two bonds to the tune of almost $650 million. Now, those payments had to be made in dollars, but Russia said that because of restrictions the U.S. and its allies have put in place, doing that, paying in U.S. currency would be impossible. So Russia used rubles, and that is not allowed. These bonds are denominated in dollars, and the contracts require Russia to make these payments in dollars. Shortly after this happened, the ratings agency S&P Global said Russia is in what's called a selective default. This is often a preliminary step before a full default. Russia has a little breathing room here, a 30-day grace period, but the clock is already ticking on that. And if the country doesn't make these payments in dollars by early May, Elsa, Russia will effectively default. And what would be the effects of that if Russia defaults? You know, a default would isolate Russia even more from the global economy at a time when it's facing widening sanctions and dwindling reserves. Access to capital markets is crucial to countries that need to borrow to pay for all kinds of projects and programs. And while Russia's debt load is fairly small relative to the size of its economy, a default would compound a situation that's gotten worse and worse. So much of Russia's foreign exchange reserves come from selling energy. And now the European Union is considering a ban on energy exports from Russia. A default is also something that would be historically significant and fraught with symbolism. Tim Samples is a professor at the University of Georgia who specializes in foreign investment. This is a reflection of just how far and how fast Russia has fallen from favor in Western capital markets. Now, countries have defaulted and eventually they've been welcomed back to the debt markets, but memories of a default tend to linger and in the future, Russia may have to pay more to borrow. And I mean... David, can Russia even make these payments that it owes? This is a good question and a tricky question. I mean, the the U.S. is making it as difficult as possible. Uh, The U.S. and its allies have frozen most of Russia's foreign currency reserves. They've placed restrictions on financial institutions. Odette Linau is a sovereign debt expert at Cornell Law School. There's been a shift in policy, and so there is a lack of a technical capacity to actually make these payments. But it's not impossible. I mean, Russia does have dollars elsewhere. It could get more dollars selling energy. And although many banks are barred from doing business with Russia, there are non-sanctioned banks with which it could work. Well, what about foreign investors? Like, are they going to be losing money? Yeah, when we say foreign investors, we're talking about hedge funds and emerging markets funds run by asset managers like Invesco and PIMCO, along with some individual investors. Sovereign debt experts told me that if investors didn't sell these bonds in the early days of the war, there's not much more they can do than wait. But right now, all signs point to a default. And if that happens, what we can expect is a significant protracted legal battle over these payments. A strange wrinkle here is that Russia's finance minister says Russia is also prepared to sue over how this has played out. This is likely to take a while. Just keep in mind that after Argentina defaulted, negotiations went on for more than a decade. That is NPR's David Gura. Thank you, David. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
We'll meet the chief ambassador of the Worcester Red Sox in just a few minutes on WBUR. On Wall Street, a slide for stocks today. The Dow fell about a quarter of a percent, 88 points, to close at 34,220. S&P dropped about a third of a percent to finish the day at 4,397. The Nasdaq fell for a third day, down three-tenths of a percent, to end the session at 13,372. Marketplace has all the details of this business day coming up at 630. In the forecast, 67 degrees, really a beautiful night out there. A few clouds around overnight tonight in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, sunshine mixed with clouds, highs about 67. Then Thursday, cloudy skies pretty much all day long. The chance of a shower, temperatures around 63 degrees. This is WBUR at 621. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep. NPR News is dedicated to bearing witness to the war in Ukraine. Our journalists are on the ground, bringing you the voices of people at the heart of the story. It's work that takes resources to do well and takes resources to do safely. It happens because of listeners who support this NPR station. Here's how to give. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And we hope you will do that right now because we just have 39 more minutes before a very generous offer is off the table. I'm Lisa Mullins. Emery Sievertson is going to give us details. Yes, that very generous offer is a triple match of any contribution that you can make to WBUR right now. So can you can you give $10 a month right now to WBUR? Say that- yes. Say yes, that's right. It'll become $30 a month for WBUR by making that call, making that contribution right now. Can you give a larger gift of maybe $500? That'll become $1,500. Can you give $2,000? That'll become $6,000 for WBUR by calling 1-800-909-9287 or making a gift online at WBUR.org. But only for the next 37 minutes we're down to now. You know, our CEO, Margaret Lowe, um, she's been, you know, in the NPR circuit here for a long time. She knows how important listener contributions are. And she spoke to us about just how vital your support really is. Our information will always be free. You will never hit a paywall that sends you packing. And trustworthy information should not only be for those who can afford it. This is a vital resource a public good that must be preserved, and that's not guaranteed. One of the great things about listener support is that people give not because they have to, but because they want this kind of journalism to to not just survive, but to thrive, and because they believe in the value of our coverage and want to support work that strengthens all of us, that makes Boston and this region an even better place to call home. And how lucky we are to call it home, how lucky we are to have WBUR as our home public radio station, as our as our source of news and information and facts, as a lifeline to the truth that we bring to you every day. We're asking you now to support it, to have our backs. Please give in any amount. Maybe it's $5 a month. It'll become $15 for WBUR. If you already make a monthly contribution, if you add a dollar a month to your gift, that will also be tripled. So just by adding $1, these generous listeners that have stepped up to encourage you to give will make that three extra dollars a month for WBUR. So please do what you can right now in any amount. 1-800-909-9287 is the number to call or go to WBUR.org. Now, if that triple match is not incentive enough, remember that you have a chance to win. Thanks to our sweepstakes, two tickets to see Paul McCartney at Fenway Park on June 8th. We are only uh, uh, putting names in the hat until 7 o'clock tonight.
tonight. So you've only got 35 minutes to go. This is part of McCartney's Got Back tour. He's going to be playing songs that span his entire career. It's a really hot ticket at Fenway Park. They've added a second show. This one is for June 8th. Two tickets. You have a chance to win them if you call right now at one 800 909 87 or going to WBUR.org. Don't forget the fundraiser is over tomorrow. We would love to include you if you want right now to call in and get your name entered in to win the sweepstakes and also take advantage of that triple match. Take stock of WBUR. Take stock of what it means in your life, of the role that it has in your life. Are you on your eighth hour of listening already today? Are you, you know, do you do you count on having all things considered in the afternoon to to keep you company on the on the drive home, but also to tell you what happened today? What do you need to know? What is the truth? What has been confirmed? What still needs to be confirmed? What does it all mean? That matters to you. It matters to the whole community that counts on WBUR. WBUR to be there for them. Be there for us right now when your money will go three times as as far. Your $100 will become $300. Your $10 a month becomes $30 a month. 1-800-909-9287 is the number or go to WBUR.org. Thank you so much for your pledge. Don't forget, you get entered into the sweepstakes to win two tickets to see Paul McCartney at Fenway Park June 8th when you call 1-800-909-9287. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Point 32 Health Companies, Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, and Tufts Health Plan, a wide range of benefits to meet the needs of every member through employer, individual, and family coverage. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Okay, Friday is the Boston Red Sox home opener at Fenway Park, but today is opening day for the Woo Sox in Worcester. The first pitch was 3:05 against the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs. This is the second season for the AAA Sox affiliate at Polar Park in Worcester since they relocated from Pawtucket in Rhode Island. And this year, there are four times more fans in the stands since pandemic restrictions have been lifted. That means 9,508 spectators per game. And lucky are the fans who need directions or a helping hand of any kind and run into a Sox employee who's like a fairy godmother with a walrus mustache, big grin, and love of his job. We found him last year at the park. Uh, Rick Medeiros, Chief Ambassador, the Worcester Red Sox, a.k.a. the Woo Sox. And you did work for the Paw Sox. I did. I spent 21 years with the Pawtucket Red Sox, a.k.a. the Paw Sox. (laughs) And you came to Worcester with the team. What's the difference between working there and working here? Uh, It's the same team, but vastly different park. Very different park. McCoy Stadium was uh, 75 years old, and this one is a newborn, and actually, you know, very state-of-the-art. I like to, if I ask, uh, you know, how would you describe it in one word, I always say just majestic. It's absolutely majestic. It's really like a work of art, and you can tell by the fans how happy they are, you know, how it looks, how it feels, uh, and, you know, the pulse of the excitement of, uh, you know, the city of Worcester in general. And it was quite refreshing to see everybody working together in the city of Worcester. And I have no doubt in my mind that this is going to be a destination. It's just great. I, you know, how can I not like 
coming to work at a ballpark. I talk to a lot of people here who work here, uh -huh. and they seem genuinely happy. Maybe oh, it's yeah. maybe they got to kind of put it on, or maybe it's because they're new, because everybody's new. But no, but you I, do too. You can never fake enthusiasm. What's the best part of your job and the worst part of your job? The best part of my job is dealing with people. I just love dealing with people. I love it. Uh, the worst part of my job, uh, God, that, that might be some thought. I don't know. What's your favorite story so far about working here? Let me just tell you what we just did. We took a ball, and I told this little kid who was with his dad, and of course this was planned out, and we said, hey, buddy, stay right here. I know where every foul ball is hit, right? So a guy behind me has the ball, and I go with the kid. I said, all right, let's stand right here, him and his dad, when I tap the back of my hat, he launches the ball in the air and it come down, bouncing in front of us. And the kid is saying, oh my God, <laughs> you know? So, uh, and now I said, see that, I told you, I got this all figured out. And he was so happy to get the ball. So you so, made his day and he made your day. Right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, um, <clears throat> That's why we do what we do. Uh, you know, it's all about the fan experience. Thank you so much. I thank you guys so much for coming. Rick Medeiros is the chief ambassador of the Worcester Red Sox. He is out there at Polar Park right now, in fact, with the score on this opening day in the eighth inning is Woo Sox 8, the Lehigh Iron Pigs 3. Marketplace is next.